Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists, where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Yan, the producer with the hosts Sophia Kayafis and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. We have a special treat today for our Art Grind listeners. It's a pleasure to finally release this interview with Noah Buchanan, which was years in the making. We did two interviews with him, one in 2018 and another one in 2020, with over six hours of content. And it's taken us a long time to find the right person to edit these for us. But our new editor, Eric Monroe, has done a great job. Noah has had an amazing success with his art career in the meantime. And we're just thrilled to be able to finally release these insightful interviews. Get cozy and grab a pen and paper because there will be plenty of technical information you will want to take a note of for later use. Without further ado, here's Noah Buchanan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Grind podcast. I'm here with Sophia and our extra special guest, Noah Buchanan. Hi. So good to have you, Noah. I've been a, a huge admirer of your work. Actually, I know the first time I saw your work was you had painted Pigeon at the same time I was painting Pigeon, and oh one of your gosh. images was online. I'm like, oh, someone painted Pigeon really well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> what an incredible model. Yeah. yeah, incredible model. Yeah. I think we may have been in an article together, too, about painting her, I oh, think. Oh, Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think I'm recalling your painting now, too, that you mentioned that. I had no idea. Um, and that was, she was living in New York. At the time, at time, yeah. And you. And before that, she had been in Seattle. And now I'm aware, because I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I teach in that area. And I'm aware of her. She's in Oakland now. And I'm seeing her right. show up in paintings there. So she's become this kind of worldwide model that a lot of painters love to work with. Yeah, well, she was so incredible. Just the way she posed and the energy she brings into I know it is it. unbelievable. Really special. So, but you were on the heels of a, a great show at Dacha Gallery. Um, Melancholy and Myth or Myth and Melancholy? Uh, it's Myth and Melancholia, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the show and the idea behind it. So there, it's kind of... Um, the principal thing, the myth, is is uh, is always something that I've always done, which is which is um, really sought after narratives that are uh, Judeo-Christian in nature and Greco-Roman okay. um, storylines. Is that is that how you grew up? It is. Yeah, I, I grew up in this this kind of strange blend of um, um, uh, coming from a, a, a Jewish background culturally. But going to um, Christian Bible schools, okay, and so I was really steeped in these Bible stories that were um, both um, from the Torah, but then also these New Testament stories, and I just really fell in love with the narratives, um, and and the you know, and then later learned to boil that down and say, well, what was it about that? And it was, you know, and it's and I think it's very Campbellian in nature. Joseph Campbell's Hero's like, journey, the hero, yes. So, um, but then my mom really. Uh, pushed a lot of um, Greek mythology on me, so we had we had a, 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 a copy of Edith Hamilton's um, mythology, yes. which I'm still that. reading right now. I still go over it. It's in my bag right there. It's like a really beat up uh, kind of 1960s uh, paperback for five cents or something. It's in my bag. Oh, the covers awesome. are way gone. But um, 
still the hero's journey, you know, and, 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 uh, and I love the idea um, in both Judeo-Christian narratives, Greco-Roman narratives, that the gods uh, just come out of the sky and they confront us, you know, and sometimes it's bad and sometimes it's good. Sometimes they're intervening. Sometimes they're aiding and assisting us. And sometimes they're even like applauding us. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. and then, and then I think the whole thing is behind it is that no matter who we are, we're thinking, oh, I'm that hero or I'm that great or I can um, supersede the gods and be yeah. admired by them. Well, it, yeah, in the Greco Roman tradition, you could kind you of could. be admired by them. Yeah. Because the gods were always like tricksters and flawed and yeah, all this sort they of were. thing. They were subject to that. They had these very human uh-huh. flaws, you know, like like um, narcissism and right. and uh, or or these very gluttonous habits. Like Zeus had a kind of a you know overzealous, lustful drive, mm-hmm. but but um, so so all of the, the the whole kind of bouquet of of things that go on with with the myth- mythological stories, um, and that idea of uh, of the divine. Uh, confronting mere mortal human nature, um, uh, that really, that really, I, I did, exploring all of the possibilities of that in in painting is, I think, really what pushes me to paint, excites me to paint. You said something actually on your statement that was, the light within a painting represents uh, man's higher self. Yes. Is that how, to explain that a little bit, because that was interesting to me. Yeah, that's that's a big part of, of what interests me about painting too. Is it, not just those the things I just mentioned in the in the philosophies, but then how the 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 paint itself behaves and is emblematic of um, uh, in the light mass in a painting. So all the areas that are illuminated um, as being a symbol for all of the sublime aspects of humanity. So um, all of the higher altruistic, philanthropic, um, uh, uh, these, these very pure ways of, of being human, um, I think are, uh, or even things like being successful and, and, um, or being a champion of something. Uh, um, I think the light stands for that. And in, in my paintings, the way I look, and the way I look at other paintings, the way I look at Caravaggio, which, where I think this really comes down from, um, is is uh, is the symbol of that, and then and then the opposite, the shadow mass in a painting is all of the other things. It's the void. Um, I don't want to say something as simple as it's it's the evil and the light is the good, but there is that too. I would add that to the list. Okay. But it's um it's the void. It's the um it's the absence of substance and hum- and humanity. It's but it's also all the ideas that Jung hits on and the shadow self. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, sort of that, that underlying uh, um, unseen subconscious part of our personality that's there. Because, um, like, you don't even really see detail in shadows, really. Is that what you're, like... Damn. Exactly. At least not in, in my paintings or in the paintings of my heroes, like Caravaggio, Ribera, Velasquez. The, the shadow is usually <clears throat> devoid of information. So there's that, and I, that, that's where, you know, I've heard about and picked up on this idea, this theme that I really liked, is in, is in mostly 17th century uh, and, and late 16th century painters like Caravaggio. 
Uh, it's also kind of a visual relief too. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. it just works. There's a utility in leaving the shadows blank a little bit, you know, like you focus on the lights, the shadows just sort of drift. Absolutely. It's like, I just saw this little thing on your painting there. It said, you said it's the easiest way. <laughs> and there is exactly that. I, when I'm painting, I feel like as I crawl across the light mass of, let's say a torso, the front or the back of it, it's this, this extremely, um, uh, it's, it's this extreme test of your skill. Mm-hmm. And then you, you get to the shadow mass and there's a feeling of respite. But it also seems to hold up and prop up all of the labor you did in the light mass. And I think if you, I feel like if I sustained that same work to the shadow mass, it would just be exhausting or it would be uh, too hard to read. And It's like a song that's all chorus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, this is, that's it. That is, that's a really good way to say it. Yeah, you need that break. Well, you're someone who is such a phenomenal technical painter and also has really sharp ideas that are developed and you're using that in a way that I don't see many people using it. I mean, we could probably count on one hand the people who paint at your level and have a grand idea behind it. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts on that? What compels you to do that, express yourself that way? Well, um, so I love the whole tradition of atelier training, and I've always admired it. Um, I went to the New York Academy of Art, and at the same time, concurrent with that program, there were all of these the fellow peers of mine were studying with Jacob Collins mm-hmm. over in Brooklyn when it was just the Water Street Atelier. Mm-hmm. And we would go over there and visit. And I was with a couple of guys who were like moonlighting there. Mm-hmm. Um, they were earning their MFAs at New York Academy. They're going to the Atelier with Jacob. And I really admired what they did. But of course, the, the common criticism, I think, in our community is that as an end goal to that, um, it, I think for many people, it's, it's a valid end point and a goal, the final goal. But I think ultimately, as, as a group, several of us need to take those skills and then make um, large narrative, multifigural works that have um, uh, some philosophical message, um, mm-hmm. some emotional message, um, um, some um, psychological um, uh, dynamic at play, or all three of those things all colliding, um, for the work to be really exciting and to to like, call other people to see it, to to demand that they look at it. Mm-hmm. And I think if people go to museums now, and those are the works that they're by and large tremendously excited by. Right. Right. Um, and so my heroes are those 17th century painters that really got that down. And, of course, I love Renaissance painters, too. But, but I think that we need to, um, in, this, in this figurative representational community, um, we need more of that. We need, we need these yeah, uh, I totally agree. painters of strong atelier training. Or, you know, atelier is one word. A tr- studio tradition training. Yeah, sure. And then they need to be... They need, they need to be pushed out of the nest as part of their training to say that, okay, you've got your cast drawing down, you've got your beautiful Alla Prima head painting down, you can do your academy standing figure, 
But now, that's just square one. Yeah, you know, that's what I think, too. I feel like all of you have, have been through this experience. I actually have not been through an atelier experience. And I feel like uh, I want to make a little interjection about it. Because I, 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 there's something that I have a complex about. Because mm -hmm. I feel like I have to have that experience that I can be a painter or something. Mm -hmm. Or that I have to know all these things. But I'm, t I'm actually teaching some classes right now. And I'm realizing that uh, the foundation of what's behind the atelier is what, is what you really need. But there's an aesthetic that the atelier puts on top of that foundation that can be hard to step past. Uh -huh. And I feel like when I'm teaching foundation at like Pratt, for instance, I'm not teaching them the way I learned because I didn't go. I'm, I'm teaching them like an idiosyncratic way of understanding the fundamental basics conception of form. How does it turn in space? What is the volume? What is the light source? So these are things that are also very important, but I'm not teaching it in a way that has a very structured framework, tradition behind it, with an aesthetic that's um, very recognizable to me. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you feel about that, if that's something that you are trying to surpass or something that you've th thought about, or I don't, I don't know, if, it, if that changes the way well, first of all, I think I think it's great that there's there's I think it's 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 not just great it's imperative that there are many different approaches to those foundation yeah. topics. Uh, what you just those you said it very succinctly like what is the form what is the light um, and what was the third thing you said um, uh, what is the volume I mean those are you could boil much of a lot of atelier issues down to that. Uh huh. Yeah. And I think it's just like science. You need multiple researchers attacking a problem from different directions and thinking about the problems in different ways. And, and even from different cultural backgrounds. And that they all help advance the science forward. Mm. Uh -huh. And so atelier uh, training is one methodology. Then there's this other kind of brand, which is kind of like an American art school brand like Pratt. Uh -huh. And I think that comes out of a tradition where classicism was lost uh, from modernism. And then there was this, but there was this need to, to keep teaching people that in the art schools. And then there was, it sort of started to bubble up, I think in the 50s and 60s, a few people that wanted to go back to representational painting. And they had to, what they did was they figured it out on their own yeah. from looking at paintings, paintings closely in museums. Yeah. Um, and, and studying their, their works, they just kind of figured out, well, what is the light, the volume, the form? How do you do that? And they tried it, trial and error. Mm -hmm. They talked amongst themselves, and, and then they shared it with their students. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful process. I and think I, that's beautiful, too. I do, and I, I have to say I owe everything to that, really, because my, my first teachers, I went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and New York Academy of Art. They weren't atelier trained artists. That's like Wade, too, similar to yes. you. Yeah. Wade and I have super similar lineage, and it kind of, it, he was very close with Arthur da Costa, uh -huh, and, right. uh, and some of my teachers were, came right out of Arthur, too, or were shoulder to shoulder with him. Martha, Martha Erlbacher was my main mentor um, through. Uh, Which, in a way, I mean, Martha really reinvigorated fig figure painting in the last 20 right. years in yeah. New York City, for sure. She did, and she was one that, and she and her husband, Walter, figured it out on their own. They just said, hey, you know what? You want to learn anatomy together? 
and they did it from scratch. Uh-huh. They did it from scratch, and they developed their own uh, codifications of the form based on uh, observation of Greco-Roman traditions, Italian Renaissance. Oh, so, so great. So my atelier training was sort of cobbled together. It was built on that foundation. And then um, I think kind of I worked with teachers at the New York Academy that were atelier-esque. Like, uh, well, John DeMartin was Uh one that I think shared a lot of atelier training with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I just uh, looked and observed to see what was going on with my friends that were there. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I, you know, I have this sort of strange blend of both traditions. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that both are out there. And, um, but ultimately important that we take any kind of high skill level training forward and we make uh, bigger, big paintings. Martha always said, uh, you know, art is big. And it's, it's any painter, no matter who they are, wants to do a beautiful head study. We still get excited by doing it, but right. but and that's nice. But we have to push it forward to the biggest ideas. Um, I think you know we could all boil it down maybe to to um, just these huge, uh, simple ideas of of um, existence. Yeah. And what does it what does it mean? What does existence mean? All the and exploring all the possible venues of that. Mm. Well, what do you think painting means to? I think, Justin, we get in this with, to this with Andrew that was interesting, was like, what, what is its utility? Like, what you're doing, I'm doing, are, it's an attempt to communicate, I think, at rock bottom. Yeah. To say, this is how I feel I'm alive on the planet right now, and yeah. I'm cat- uh, documenting that to some degree. Yeah. What is... Do you see that as a necessity, like um, two-part question, in your life and for others to see these works of art? Not even, not even yours necessarily, but in museums and stuff. Yeah, I do, I do think it's a necessity. I love the way you put that. Like, uh, to, you boiled it down to its essence of, of uh, I'm alive and I need to document that in some manner. And you stripped it down to the bare roots of it. <laughs> uh, I like doing that because I think people can understand things better that way when you just boil it down to its essence. But I, I was talking with um, a friend of mine. You know, he works for Google, very scientific, analytical mind. Went to MIT, and you know, I think has a, has a very distant, apart relationship from um, the arts. And I was explaining it to him in that same way because I said, look at uh, cave art where uh, uh, just a sprayed hand on the wall as an affirmation that I exist, I'm here. And then we add on to it images of um, very archaic-looking animals, like this is how I exist. Mm -hmm. I hunt these, and I notice that when I hunt these and eat these, I stay alive. Mm -hmm. And I notice that my whole life becomes about that. Mm -hmm. And I want to document that. So there's this primordial id need Mm -hmm. to document our existence and we've been ingrained somewhere in our code to ask why are we here? Uh-huh. And, then, and now that we've advanced way beyond primitive cultures and we have this, this, this crazy world with, that are, that's full of so many ways of being and so many levels of, of existence, um, we, we have so much to explore now. It's like, our, it's like our art is more, in a way... 
there's something so fundamental about the cave painting and the handprint mm-hmm. right now. And we've, we're past that and our art is more conceptual now. It it's is. got a lot more going on, but I think it, it actually reminds me of that part in Thoreau where Henry David Thoreau was saying like, when you're out in the woods by yourself, you're thinking about food, clothing and shelter mm-hmm. constantly. Mm-hmm. And it's like survival. And then you get those things met, but the survival mechanism never turns off. So you could get to a level of affluence where you're thinking about the new rug on, you know, $10,000 rug the same way you would be. I need to get a shirt on my back, you know? And I think even though our art is more conceptual now, it's still a handprint saying, hey, you can eat these animals and survive. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then I think the, the, the major, the, this is when it becomes art, though, is this need for us to document the existence, like you said. But then there's also this, this um, subconscious need to then figure out a way to make it beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think, go back, so let's go back to the guy spraying mm-hmm. his hand on the wall. Or, um, or, or, or further still, a more survivalistic mechanism, not even a communication Who's the guy in the tribe that's chipping out these uh, arrowheads? Um, because that's what works to get these animals that we need to survive, right? Uh-huh. So we're a bare bones existence. There's one guy in the tribe that does it really, really well. And you really want one of his. Uh-huh. And one day, somebody says, you know what? I'm not going to use this one. It's so, it's so perfect. I'm just going to put it right here on the wall. Oh, my God. It's- as emblematic of that's... I don't know the way the way that that person made that um, and how it looks. I feel compelled to want to just have it, to uh, to own it, to look at it and think about it. So aesthetics coming out of utility. Yeah, mm. oh, because or you said shirt on your back. It's like so we could we could make that just some frock like tunic. Or, but then after that's achieved, we want it to have some kind of design to it. Mm-hmm. And so it's existence plus beauty. Uh-huh. I. I think that's what it all boils down to. And no, would you say entertainment is the beauty aspect? Like the, the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down in a way? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a part of it. It, it. it certainly helps to sell it to an audience, I suppose. Um, you know, I, but then I just, I would make the argument that it's, it's still, it's part of a, um, uh, just this urge that comes out of us. Um, uh, involuntary urge to seek out beauty, but but I think it, going into making images that communicate um, well uh, and can be read well by the viewer, by the consumer of it, then yeah, it's the spoonful of sugar. <laughs> okay, I have an introduction. <laughs> so I was looking at Caravaggio uh, with a class. I'm working with Bernardo Siciliano. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know his paintings. I do. He loves Masaccio. That's his, like, god. Oh. And so when he talks about painting, it all stems from Masaccio. Masaccio is the beginning. It's the end. It's, we didn't need to go further. We just did anyway. Really? Yeah. And so he, he thinks that he has this ability to combine the, the, drawing, the, the feeling of drawing with the feeling of painting, the texture and the atmosphere with something clear and defined. Um, that, that an edge quality of drawing could give you. Mm-hmm. And we got into Caravaggio last week, and mm-hmm. he was 
kind of pointing out to me some things that I, I never realized, not just about how he works, how he has these two rooms, he looks in the mirror, and he frames it for this very cinematic mm-hmm. effect. He can find whatever he wants, and paint and light it affects his, his darks, his backgrounds feel like a stage. So, mm-hmm. And he's on the go, so he's not using all these fabrics and things. These are the bare bones yeah. of the studio, whatever he needs. Yeah. But something that stuck out to me, like from what you're saying, like you love Caravaggio. I do. And you're also saying that you love... Um, I don't know if you're saying you love it, but you're saying that there's something beautiful about making art. That there's there mm-hmm. should be some kind of beauty to the message with mm-hmm. the, the philosophy. And like one thing that was sticking out was for me, like when I was looking at those pictures, like and what they what people hated about it was that it was so real. It was yeah. too real. It was not. It nice. was actually ugly mm-hmm. to them. He was using like prostitutes and mm-hmm. and. Laymen, like for whoever mm-hmm. to like to sit for him, and like that was fucking edgy, yes. you know, like, yeah. and that made it stick. And I'm wondering, like, if that element of realism, or maybe what this word you said earlier, modernism, that ugliness, if that aided him in a way. Oh, and, I think so. And if absolutely, that, and if you think about those things. Oh yeah, all the way. Okay. Yeah, I'm so thank you for bringing that up. That was beautifully said. Uh, even the F word. <laughs> no, I loved it. Because um, that's if you're going to talk about Caravaggio, you got to throw the F word in at least once. <laughs> I mean, you're not really talking about it unless you do. Well, no, because you're talking about he brought in the gritty and the grimy into the into a theatrical presentation of the divine. And what I said at the beginning of this conversation was the idea of the divine confronting the mortal, and it's the same thing. It's that's a confrontation too. It's almost the other way around, isn't it? Like a gritty prostitute, a uh, homeless person with the dirty feet, uh, you know, adoring the Madonna and child. Um, it's almost like here's the mortal confronting Humanity, God. Humanity, yeah. 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 Forcing our grossness upon the sublime. Yeah. And, and Caravaggio um, was all about that idea that, that um, which I think was sort of beautiful in, in, a, in a Christian ideal, which is that, yeah. you know, Jesus went around hanging around with these, with these um, criminals, right. prostitutes, mm-hmm. thugs, um, and and I think, you know that, and he really saw that in the message he needed to portray for uh-huh. the church, and 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 I love it because I think it, the church did not want to look at that, right. especially at that time, uh-huh. um, and he said, "I'll give you a painting, <laughs> and I'll and I'll do it so good you have to look at it." Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, I think uh, he almost shaped theology in a way. I think he changed the way people viewed religion. And, you know? Yeah. Um, there's that one painting at the Met where it's like Jesus is sort of at the table and no one's really looking at Jesus. It's just a weird thing. Yeah. It has yeah, such yeah. a weird vibe to like, it. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, across. No one's just like adoring. It's almost like a, he came in or whatever. And it's like yeah. so powerful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the opposite of that is, um, from what you're describing, is um, uh, Fra Angelico. Uh, because it's like there is no real humanity in that. It's all sort of crystalline, dreamy. It takes place only like in some um, divine realm. Didn't he live in a, in a you know, monastery? Yeah, he was a monk. Yeah, yeah. he I, did. He lived in, in, in San Marco in Florence. It's amazing. Yeah. And I, I, was, I, was ha- I had a conversation once with um, a very devout Catholic artist, and 
uh, while I was doing a commission for the Catholic Church. And I, and I kept saying, Caravaggio this, Caravaggio that. He said, you know, I have to tell you, I, most contemporary Catholics don't resonate with Caravaggio. Oh. And I said, well, then who would it be? And he said, well, I think, I think Fra Angelico is, is kind of the one that captures the more uh, pure uh, Catholic ideals, which was, which was, you know, which was foreign to me. Be, you know, because of what I'm interested in, in in theology and what I'm interested in in, in art. Mm. Wait, did he kill someone? He sure did, yeah. He, yeah. Like, he like, died on the run. Yeah. <laughs> he and, and he died on the run, yeah. <laughs> no, Frangelico. Frangelico? Yeah, Frangelico was the monk in the monastery, but Caravaggio lived in the opposite life. <laughs> Their work really reflects that, though, the aesthetic, the... You're right. Yeah. It really did, because he was, you know, yeah, one one in a, in a monastery, extremes. yeah, <laughs> and one in bars having fights, and I have I have a semi boring technical question for you. Oh, I love that because <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you paint form, and it is reminiscent of Caravaggio's. How would you distill? This is so. This is so nerdy. Uh, like Caravaggio's light source, do you like light mass, half tone shadow? How would you describe that? And, oh, okay. Does it affect your painting? Um, oh, so so he obviously he's doing the chiaroscuro thing. He's sort of the inventor of that, uh-huh. and um, the the light mass is um, it's it's precariously balanced on flooding the light mass to us. To a very high, highly keyed, I guess in photographic terms, like an overexposed uh-huh. Uh-huh. set state where the, a lot of the half tones are pushed up higher than they really, than they really are, and then the turning zone or the, the half light zone is compressed perfectly to the right amount because if you go too much to and make it too small, it looks like a line, like a line mm-hmm. and then you don't get roundness; you get you get a corner on the form. And so he's finding just that perfect balance of turning to make the form round and volumetric, but then, but then doing the other thing enough where the light becomes these stark rifts of of illumination floating in the darkness. Mm-hmm. And he walks that tightrope that really appeals to me. I have to say, before my first love was um, Ribera, Giuseppe de Ribera, who was who is considered a Caravaggisti. Um, you know, after, and he did that even more so. You know, he he makes these rifts of light floating in the darkness even more stark. I think he took Caravaggio's chiaroscuro and pushed it even more extreme um, into uh, flattened it a little bit more, but almost obtained a higher sense of. I don't know. I don't want to say that, but but more realism, I suppose, more more perceptual realism. And, and Caravaggio, by, by contrast, looks a little, almost a touch more conceptualized, if you could, you know, it, it's, it's sort of surprising to say that, but a little bit more conceptualized and mannered compared to R- Ribera. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is a little more mannered. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And so I, I'm, 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 in, I'm totally on board with, with what both of them did in terms of handling the light mass that way. And a technical answer, I think, is that we... And you know how to do it, clearly looking at your paintings here. You just you have to compress the value range down mm-hmm. so tight. 
um, so that you don't chop up the form. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, but not so much that it's flat. And you have to be extra, extra, extra sensitive about the half tone or what a lot of artists call the turning zone. I call it the half light or half tone when I'm talking to students. And it's that area where the light ray is tangent to the form. So you think Caravaggio's is just, he, it, to me, he just uses a small half tone. Like it could be wider with more Turn, fl- volumetric turning. Yeah, so exactly. A, 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 a larger turning, a larger rate of curvature. Because I'm thinking of in your painting Bacchus on the, in that one at Dacia right now, the yeah. Bacchus has a huge light mass on the chest, and that's yeah. so compelling. And you have to get all the way across so well. the silhouette to to the half light. And yeah, you have to you have to get all the way over to see a turn, and you also have to. Um, it's kind of like swimming a vast, uh, uh, marathon swim from one shore to another. It's exhausting. Uh, and you're, I, I think of it that way. I can't wait to get to the other side from the edge to the half light because then I can go, oh, I can relax. Oh, uh, interesting. But, but that journey, though, is so epically um, intense and exhausting and unforgiving. Mm. And I, I love it. And I also, I, I sort of, you know, I, I live in fear of doing that sometimes. Do you do, do things like you said you live in fear of that and it, that just struck me. Do you what what does scare you in the studio like day to day going in? What is It's the day that I have to go across a large in scale like let's say life size um very um um singular form and a broad rate of curvature. <laughs> so trying to make the paint turn the form on a large scale um, across a very simple turning form, which could be um, something like um, a, a very soft uh, back on a torso okay. or um, a, a pair of, of buttocks uh-huh. on a really large scale, um, which sounds comical to say uh, if you just take that sound bite by itself. Um, but it's on a large scale. It's a great sound bite. I, I live in fear of that. <laughs> Title of the episode. Yeah. Um, I know. I know that I'm going to have to go over that form three and four and five times, and each one of those is going to be like a whole day, and it's going to be about second guessing. Did I? Am I done? Or does it need another pass? Because the back, can, uh, as opposed to the chest, usually you get some shadow masses on the torso. That yeah. Or a little break in between. Yeah. Uh-huh. Little breaks, little little sub shapes, little shadow shapes. Little islands you can. Little you can little <laughs> islands of, of of dark darker value, uh-huh. like half lights, dark lights, things like that. They they make it easier. So if you're, that's why I th- I was jokingly say the best thing to paint, the most fun thing to paint, and, and most beautiful thing to paint. Is, is a leathery old man uh-huh. because you don't have to worry about the beauty and softness of it. Uh-huh. And that's the hardest thing to get the paint to do. Uh-huh. I think the language of painting lends itself most easily to um, these leathery old men. And yet, of course, <laughs> the, 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 then the, the most sublime thing to capture is the, the youth, femininity, softness of form. Um, um, delicate turning of form, whatever it is. Yeah, and yeah. that's where the real test is. Because it can not... look plastic if you do yeah. it wrong. Yeah, yeah. 
That's yeah, where the I real think test it's is. It's easier to draw old people with wrinkles too. There's just so many landmarks. It just it's so much easier. Yes. Yeah. No. I also had a nerdy question. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I've never taken a painting that far from a drawing that's so pristine into half. Mm. I took like a J.P. Roy class once, the, the yeah. anatomy, and he really got you know into explaining to us all of the concepts about the nature of light. Yeah. And how it changes colors and how he knows and, so much and, about fall that. off all these yeah. things, but um, I'm wondering more about my interest is usually more in the material than the effect. Of the okay, mm -hmm. I like that the material can give yeah. the effect of light, but I like the material as its own thing, uh -huh. almost like on a side Swambley level. Mm -hmm. like, ah. I hear you. So yeah, um, I'm wondering if you could explain how the thickness, okay, because I keep trying to tell students that the, there's a spectrum of paint, and everyone's functioning on a different part of that uh -huh. spectrum, whatever it is. Yes. And I feel like yours goes from being super thin, kind of glazed, transparent, yeah. mm -hmm. and you, you keep that your ground, mm -hmm. and you're building into the lights kind of thickly. Oh, yeah. But then after that dries, what happens next with the paint? Does it get thinner and then thicker and then thinner? Like, mm -hmm. Describe to me the, oh, that's the a fun viscosity question. of your paint. Well, I, I, for me, the painting has to explore the full range. You know, in, in my little universe of my own studio, it's like it's requisite that you must go through the entire uh, manifestations of what paint can be, and it can be oil paint can be uh, like watercolor, you know, or it can be this thick, incredibly pasty, um, caked on uh, layers. And so I make these rules that my paintings have to ride the entire range, and I tend not to go that that thick compared to other paintings. I'm certainly no Lucian Freud or anything. Um, but I do try to, in my brightest areas, try to have the thickest paint. Um, it, the painting, to answer your question, go, goes from these transparent uh, glaze, to simplify it, glazes that start off uh, glazy. Uh, and I start getting more and more thick. And then as we get into the light mass, the paint gets at its thickest or most opaque. And then I, if I want to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to put a glaze over that to either darken or to augment the color or uh, either weaken or strengthen the chroma, uh, unify, certainly. Um, but then I'm also allowed to go back on top of it thick again. So I'll make these layers where it's, it's thick paint and then a glaze and then thick paint and a glaze. Mm -hmm. But one thing I, I do that I, I'm, I'm, cons I'm convinced was, was a, a principal painting practice for, uh, I think, all the way from the Renaissance up through 17th century painting, is that a glaze is actually um, a working, in many cases, it's, it's a working glaze. And it's put down to facilitate the new layer of paint. Mm. So essentially, what I do to, to make it simple is I'll put a glaze down over a, a passage that I've already painted. Mm. I put down a glaze... It's usually very mild in color. has a little bit of a color to it. It has white in it? No white. No white in this case. Uh, and then I paint into the wet glaze. So the, I, in other words, I put the glaze down as the opening um, statement. statement. Almost like oiling out with color. It's oiling out with color. Uh -huh. That's why I describe it exactly that way. Because you could also oil out, which just it basically puts down a lubricant on the surface. Right. It also brings back your colors, as we know. Right. And, and then you make a new pass. Uh, to further model a painting. But if you do it with a color, so oiling out with color is actually glazing, you do it with a color, then that color now 
behaves as a, a color harmony agent across any subsequent modeling you're doing. Uh, and I'll do that multiple times, layer after layer. Does that answer that question? I, yeah, I think no. that's what you were getting at. Because I, I was wondering, like, does it just, after that initial, you know, light to dark masses with a turning? Yeah. There's no way you're just adding just transparent glazes. That's no. something that I've never really grasped in J.P. Wright's class. Yeah. Because it, it was something about having the scumble. Yeah. The scumble is not a glaze. Right. The scumble has white. Yeah. Uh -huh. And the scumble is thicker, and it has a, a, a mm -hmm. whole spectrum yes. of thicknesses. Yes, you can that's go the back into that not Absolutely. being direct, and unfortunately, yeah. like in the in the academy, it seems like they separate them like you're mm. two they, continents: they the direct so and the much. indirect. It's not like that. Right, you're just completely. You go back and forth, really, yeah. as a painter. Now, more than glazing, though, what really excites me is what you're talking about with scumbling, or to do a, a wet scumble. So, in my dictionary, a wet scumble once once you add be medium into the process of scumbling. It's no longer a scumble, it's a velatura. And so, and that's what really attracts me to a lot of 17th century painting. Because you can see it in Velazquez, you definitely see it in Caravaggio. Um, you, you see it in all the great painters, Rembrandt. Um, and, and it's to apply the opaque paint uh, with white in it, lead white. In a, in, a, in a slightly transparent manner. And then, you, as you said, the spectrum of colors come out. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of those, I think, can be simplified down to optical cools. So you take that, that color that's loaded with a lot of lead white, you force it to become transparent slightly against its will. And it changes everything. And the blueness comes through the cool. Martha Erlbacher always said cool, which oh, is not a word. But we have a wor word for warmth. But <laughs> so we painters need that word. They need that word cool because it's easy to make warmth in a painting. Yep. And students, I notice students always see the warmth on day one. Yes. They see browns, yellows, oranges. They're like, I oh. see that. And then you have to teach them about cools. And for some reason, there's this resistance in the eye to know about cools, to use them. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I try to hammer cools in with students. All It's the thing missing. It is. Everybody paints these orange heads, and I'm like, man, come on. And I think a lot of people, without putting their finger on it, especially when we're, when we're young students, we, when we see a great painting, this ineffable feeling of life-like flesh, it's all in the cools. It is all in the cools. And, and that's what those uh, painters, the indirect painters, um, uh, really got well was this optical cool that came out of a wet scumble or velatura. And a velatura can be many things, like it can be the sfumato that Leonardo did over the atmospheric background. It can be just a haze applied over um, a ground. Um, but I think the, the highest form of a velatura is when you make a form pass over your flesh, mostly opaque, but you let it drift into the spectrum that you're saying, of, of semi-transparencies. And that's, for figure painters, that's it. And, and for me, that's, it's all about that. And that's uh, mostly what I'm keen on doing in my paintings. And, and I think what, uh, as a teacher, because I teach a lot, what, what I want to be as a teacher is someone who, who helps students to learn about that. Because there's a lot of excellent painters uh, that teach about a la prima painting. And there's a lot of wonderful painters um, that, uh, that go into um, uh, teaching about the atelier form-based methods of drawing and painting. But I'm really, I want to help revive um, 
not to fall into that, the, the stereotype of indirect versus direct. But I want to focus on teaching those indirect things, uh -huh. like Velatura, mm -hmm. and using it to create flesh in life. Um, uh, I think that that's really exciting to me from the teaching aspect. But then, of course, using that in a narrative sense, like, like in your paintings, Marshall, um, mm -hmm. to, to wrestle and grapple with dynamics of psychology, philosophy, emotions, existence, um, because we recognize ourselves in it. Right. And it makes it very poignant. Yeah, I totally agree. This is the second interview we had with Noah in 2020. Hey guys, welcome to the Art Grime Podcast. I'm your host, Marshall Jones, here with Sophia Kaafis. Hello. Tan Myang. Hello. And today we are talking to a great painter and a friend that uh, we're real happy to have, Noah Buchanan. Hello. Thanks for coming, Noah. Thanks for, I'm glad to be back. So you just brought over International Artist Magazine, the, is it March, February, March edition? That's right. Uh, with your article on indirect painting methods. And yep. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, I guess, first off, why paint indirectly rather than directly? Well, it's, it's a way of painting that each stage of it is, I think one of the things it's designed to do is, is really just boost the morale of the painter. And so at each step of the way, you're creating something that you feel good about and you feel at peace with. You know, I think we've all had the experience of learning to paint where we pass through these stages in the process where it feels icky to uh -huh. be in that moment. And we tell ourselves, you know, I'll fix it in the next stage or uh, I'm, I can't wait to get to this part where I uh, make it look better, you know. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I've noticed in studying indirect painting over the years is that at each layer of, of the painting, um, you come up with, um, with, uh, a stage in the painting that just feels like you're enjoying it. You know, you don't, you're not rushing to, to finish it or rushing to get to the next moment. And you're, you're sort of, I think it, it puts you at ease and you're painting with more patience and more confidence. And, um, so I say it boosts the morale of the painter. So that's, that's one thing I think that people say, you know, this feels good at every stage. Right. But, but I mean, the main thing that I go into in the article is I think um, the amazing thing about indirect painting is that um, just setting aside its historical uh, its historical importance, which we could talk about in a second, but it, um, it, it celebrates um, oil paint's ability to function in, in simultaneously in both uh, modes of opacity and transparency. Yeah, it does what paint it allows you to show off what paint can do. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And and so and when we go to a museum, you know, pick your favorite museum. Um, I would argue that the bulk of the work that you see in the museum is going to be made with one of the many formulas and recipes of indirect painting through through the past centuries of of art history of Western art history. Yeah, yeah, there was that. Um... I remember a, a quote by, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name, and I'm not going to quite remember the quote either. Um, 
a great uh, indirect kind of um, more of an illustrator, nineteen twenties, thirties. What was his name? Howard Pyle, or no. um, it's uh, uh, um, wait, Paul oh, Parrish. Oh, oh, sure, of course. And I couldn't think of his name, and it was yeah. driving me nuts. Yeah, but he said, uh, "I thought this was really quite beautiful." He said, "Imagine a Rembrandt." If his magic browns were mixed together instead of glaze, the result would be kind of chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I yeah. feel that in that approach of like layering glazes, like it's a it's a nice visual to imagine just Rembrandt totally opaque. It would just sort of kill the painting, right? T- totally. Yeah, without the transparency. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um it's it's got this high luminosity. That's another big reason to use indirect painting is because the shadows are transparent, um, light passes through those layers and sometimes there are, you know, multiple layers to them, but they're all transparent. So you have this really complex layering and mingling of the various colors of glazes building up the shadow mass. Mm -hmm. But then the, the light mass is built up with thick applications of, of lead white. Um, a lot of painters, myself included, um, are also putting chalk into the lead white to make it. Um, it actually increases its transparency at the same time that it builds up its body. Okay. So the what chalk. A, what about marble dust? Does that work? Uh, marble dust could would achieve, um, I think, the same results. Really. Okay. Yeah, it would. Yeah. Okay. So so um, it, with with the the thick layers of white that are actually translucent, you know, as lead white likes to be translucent. You've got um, light passing through and hitting the sled white and bouncing back to the viewer and giving us this um, uh, intense glow to the light mass especially. And so, you know, the big painters that we could talk about would be Rembrandt, Caravaggio, Rubens. Um, Velasquez, I think, does this in a lot of his paintings. Uh, Van Dyck. You know, the the sort of the, the big... Van Dyke had the gorgeous, like, little grisaise, too, that they yeah. were painted over. Just on their own are really beautiful. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So when you... Do you use... What kind of umber are you using with your lake white so, or red white? To, you mean to create the darker value? In yeah, the, exactly. In, yeah, and the, the first layer of the, of the indirect painting process that I use is called an imprimatura. Um, and a lot of, a lot of contemporary, um, painters, students, teachers refer to it as a wipeout. Um, and so I prefer the term imprimatura because it's got historical, um, uh, significance to it. Um, it's, it's, uh, just a prettier, you know, more, um, it's got the Italianate going for it. Um, it it means at the first, you know, um, I'm sorry, that's alla prima, but it means early in the painting, you know, um, and so people also call that open grisaille too. Right? Open, yeah, I've heard that yeah. term too. Yes, I've uh-huh. heard that. Yeah, so I, I tend not to like the term wipeout because it just has negative connotations. Yeah. I feel <laughs> you know it's so beautiful. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a good wipeout is actually a beautiful thing. But you do use rags to pull out, lift out material I, with it. I am. Yeah, I'm. I'm a. So to answer your first question, I'm applying it as a raw umber which I mix with um, either uh, a burnt sienna or I'll mix it with a uh, brown pink to give the raw umber a little bit oh, more. Oh, the brown pink. Depth. Like Sennelier's brown pink? 
Um, I'm using, um, I use Old Holland sometimes. I use Williamsburg sometimes. Okay. Um, I haven't tried Sennelier's though, but it's, I bet it's nice. It's an inter- it's an interesting color because some of them are actually kind of red. Yeah. But Sennelier's is this really weird green color. Oh. And I've heard from, um, God, I'm blanking on his name. The guy who runs Sennelier said that that was like mixed for Sargent's way of using that. Oh, I want to try that. I yeah. got I got some tubes. I'll show it to you. It's really cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've experimented with the Imprimatur color a lot over the years. Um, one version of it that's really beautiful that um, I learned from Martha Erlbacher when she was alive. She was my teacher. She died in 2013. But um, she had a formula for doing this, and she would mix together two really unexpected colors, um, alizarin crimson and sap green. And yep. together they made a gorgeous um, a simulation of like bitumen or asphaltum, you know, just yep. that beautiful tobacco sepia brown. Yeah. That's, that's my you can um, actually add a little bit of ultramarine blue too. Yeah. To that. Yeah. To, to kind of shift the warm, cool yeah. character. And what I thought was amazing about this, I learned this later, many years later from, from a friend of mine who shared some manuscript information with me, that Van Dyke's glazing brown was mixed out of Red Matter Lake, uh, Still de Grand, and Bone Black. And what's interesting about that is that Red Matter Lake is really the, the historical antecedent of Lizard and Crimson. And uh, Sap Green is made from buckthorn berries, and so is Still de Grand. So um, we're just taking, and we're adding a little bit of black to bring the kind of an earth tone into it, bone black, and you get essentially the same color. And so that's been historically proven that that mixture is in Rembrandt's glazes, especially his underpainting glazes and how he's working up his browns. Really? Yeah. That's so, so cool. So, that's so great. I'm not sure if Martha was aware of that, but she, I think on her own, she, she approximated that color uh, and I think got really close to it. So that, that's another nice um, version of the uh, of a color to use for an imprimatura. That's great. Yeah. And, and again, while you're doing that, do you 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 take a a transfer drawing? Yeah. And and put the imprimatura. Do you go all over it? Are you careful with the drawing? Are you wiping? Like I know some people just do a whole film over the whole thing and start wiping out. Yeah. Like, what's your method? That there? that could be a nice way to to do it. I've I've done it that way in the past, but then. Then you're kind of you're really drawing, you know, you're you're really concerned about the drawing mm-hmm. too, which uh-huh. which is fine and it's admirable. Um, but I like to, you can see in some of the examples that we're looking at here, the the drawing has been pre-transferred onto the canvas. So and I, that's with paint that's dried or with yeah, okay. it is. It's yeah. So I make I have a cartoon uh, line drawing of the painting that I apply raw umber paint on the back. Then I fix that raw onto the canvas. Paint. Yeah, so I just scrub raw umber oil paint directly on the back of the cartoon. Um, fix that to the canvas in the desired position, and then um, tracing the cartoon. Really? Uh, you're you're making those those very clean and you raw umber lines. Clean? Yeah, I've never seen that. Before. Yeah, because if you think about it, the raw umber is um, well, it's, a, it's an especially kind of stiff. Yep. Paint. It absorbs yeah, yeah. into the Quick paint dryer. It's fast dryer because it has manganese in it. Um, and it just absorbs into the paper, and it sets up in just a, a moment or two, um, and it feels dry to the touch. But if you tr- trace or transfer a line no with, a, with a ballpoint pen or pencil or other rigid stylus, so 
clean. It makes a clean line. And that would be dry, um, you know, in less than 24 that. hours. That's so cool. I love or, that. And I've even done it where, um, you know, you make the transfer, but you, you don't have time to wait. You, you could just work in an additive manner with earth tone washes so that you don't wash your line away. But if the line is dry, then, to, yeah, to answer your question, you could apply a general wash, mm -hmm. uh, or that's where the imprimatur word comes in, like the first early uh, tone applied right. is an imprimatur. And then I'm modeling it by removing it with the rag, uh, with the finger in the rag and rubbing it out. And then I'm adding darker darks back in with the same imprimatur color, but added with the brush to work up the darker values. So when you're taking off, you're also putting on at the same time? Yeah, yeah. Because you're kind of playing with your, you're even maybe using a dry brush and... Absolutely, yeah. Using a lot of, so there's a wet brush, there's a dry brush, there's, there's a brush that's loaded with the Imprimatura color that's adding dark accents back in. Adding and subtracting. The whole yeah, way. yeah. I have one more question before we get too far sure. about the transfer. Sure. Well, actually I have two. What's the advantage of the raw umber over just like a tracing paper with charcoal or graphite or something like that? Well... Um, I often find it requires one more step. So if you, if you transfer it with, um, vine charcoal, which you could do uh -huh. over the back it. of the line, you've got to do something to stabilize the line drawing. Unless, yeah. you, unless you don't care if you're kind of painter where you're just going to work into that drawing and the draw, the drawing's there to help, help guide you, but you're essentially going to destroy it in the act of creating the underpainting and you're okay with that. Mm -hmm. Then I, you know, go for it. Um, if you're using an earth tone like this, like an earth tone wash, you probably don't care about getting some charcoal or graphite mixed in with it either. Right. But, uh, you know, in some cases, if you have a, if you're transferring a line drawing and let's say then you're going for a full color overpass right away because you're a direct painter. Right. Well, you, you don't want graphite or fine charcoal there because it's going to dirty your color. Yeah, it's going to dirty the color. Yeah. I noticed that if I spray matte fix. Yeah with water onto it just real light it'll seal it yeah oh and then then i can even scrape just straight matte right matte on fix like a matte medium or something yeah and then oh, i can paint on it and that, but then it would have to be acrylic prime to do that yes yeah. it would have to be yeah. that's true yeah um you know you could i'm sure an, ar an archival or, or conservator uh, uh oriented person would say don't do this but you could spray fixative. I've done that in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. not sure, you know, the, ar the archival quality of painting on top of sprayed glue, which is what fixative is, right? right? Exactly. Um, or you could spray varnish, maybe a little more archival, but now you're putting like a brittle sprayed layer yep. over the painting. That would lock the drawing down. So, but I prefer to, um, you know, transfer the line drawing and then give it overnight, and then I'm much happier. I'm going to try day. that. Now. Just. Applying I'm definitely going to try that. Yeah, method. and any working method you want to do from there is totally open to you. So I, I rarely transfer now. I used to do it at school. And I would do, I, I always liked, so two, two reasons for this. I always liked my drawing. Yeah. And I didn't want to ruin it transferring. Yeah. yeah. So I devised a plan. I would go to Kinko's and copy yeah. the drawing. Yep. But then I always found in the transfer... You'd still lose it. Well, but there was something about the indecision, the, the multiple lines. It had a vibration, and I felt it would get a little stiff when it got transferred onto the... Yeah. How do, yeah. What, do you have strategies yeah, against that? Or? that too. Um, Does that even bother you? Uh, 
I know what you're talking about. I've certainly seen it. It depends on how I'm doing it. I think if if I'm uh, working up a drawing uh, and the model can still come back and pose, let's say, I'll I'll make the transfer. But before I begin working on it, I'll recertify the drawing. Recertify I'll, the drawing. Yeah, because now it's only canvas. You know, ostensibly the proportions and structure are all good. Yeah. You just want to breathe a little more life back into it. Right. So I'll recertify the drawing. You right. know where I'm. I'm basically making another pass now that it's on canvas and trying to trying to just shake that that stiffness off of it. Yeah, that's all. So you know that Are could you be doing done that in paint. Uh, like very very thin. Not necessarily. If it depends on the transfer method. Like if you're transferring in charcoal, let's say, um, recertifying with uh, could be charcoal. But you know what I what I've used in the past it works really well. Again, this came uh, from Martha's techniques. Uh, a Stabilo uh, all pencil, and it's basically one of those crayon-like pencils um, that is, you know, it says it writes on everything like paper, metal, glass. Okay. And it's also water soluble, and because it's water soluble, wow. it will it's impervious to oil, so it won't it won't uh, reconstitute or break down in oil. So you have this clean, black, crisp line. It also never comes bleeding back through the paintings. You know, uh, people people think, well, that's not just going to rise to the surface eventually. Never shows up again. Really? Um, so that could be a good good tool to recertify your drawing. That. Oh that's God. called Stabilo All? Yeah. That's Stabilo. a perfect utensil. Though. It is, yeah. And, you know, you know there, another uh, application for them. <laughs> this is great. That um, <laughs> is a big coincidence. I learned how to do that from Stephen. Uh, sorry, from Martha. I just gave it away. And then studying with Stephen Asale. He uses those pencils to um, get his really rich, dark values in his graphite drawings. Uh, and he uh -huh. interlayers his drawings so complexly. He, he's, he's doing layers of graphite and blending them and then putting a layer of the Stabilo pencil on top of it and blending that and going back over it with graphite. Huh. And these days I notice he's, he's building up this complex of graphite and he calls it crayon, but it's Stabilo pencil. He builds up this kind of parfait of layers, and then he can use his razor blade and scratch through it. So he's kind of creating a scratch board effect for hair oh, uh, wow. and, and those How kind of cool. textures, you know. Yeah. And he just, you know, he's so amazing with it. And um, so that's another application for that particular pencil. But it's a, so it's a black Stabilo all pencil, and it says number 8046 on it. I think the the, the <laughs> listeners are going to love this because we're just I'm, we're going technique. Yeah, it's, I'm it's, having oh, yeah. A it's shop talk. <laughs> it's shop talk. For it's the, fun. All the nerds <laughs> out there. It's so cool. So and and so if I do, I'm going to try the raw umber because I yeah I'm fascinated with that. If I do get a drawing I like. Take it to Kinko's. Is mm -hmm. that Kinko's paper good enough to it's, paint on the back and lay it on? Not only is it good enough, it is the ideal thing. It's perfect. Yeah, because it's smooth. It doesn't have any. It's smooth. Texture. It's a little bit absorbent, so it's gonna it's gonna suck up that raw uh -huh. umber, and it is just the right level of thinness mm -hmm. that when you transfer, when you trace, your 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 pencil is transmitting through just the ideal pressure, and you're gonna get like a crystal clear, flowery little line. Yeah. No, no, no medium, no solvent, just nope. rubbing it on the back. Straight paint right into the paper. It takes a bit of time to scrub it on. Okay. Um, and I also have found it's really important to, after you scrub it on the back, right, you want to turn and look at the photocopy from the front, and you'll be able to see a halo of where you've applied paint and where you haven't. And even when you think you've got 
gotten the whole thing covered on the back, you'll find like you're missing the elbow or the tip of the nose or, uh-huh. you know, the shoulder. You just didn't quite make it to the edge of the drawing and you need to go back and make sure those areas have paint behind them so you can transfer your whole drawing on there. And and for me, you know, back to this recertifying the drawing question. Yeah. For me, I, I mean, the drawing is transferred. It is a bit stiff and traced. You can see in the example we're looking at, um, in the you can see in the upper. This is in the magazine, right? Uh, this one's not. This, this one's, one's just not. on my Instagram okay. account. Um, you can see an area that I've transferred uh, with the lines in the upper left here of the image we're looking at are incredibly traced and right. There's no attempt to make them look organic again. They just look traced. But um, what I'm relying on is that the imprimatura wash that follows, that brings back the organic quality. Yeah, because yeah, then you're, you're reacting again at that yeah. point. Yeah. So that's your opportunity, right? The pressure, the, 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 the layer of transparency and, and ability to blend. Okay. Yeah. So you're using your mixture, you said, of a, like a raw umber and a burnt sienna. Was that it? To, that's the one to, I'm using these days. To go days. over. Uh, the, 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 as I said in the magazine article, I mixed up um, a mixture of, of raw umber, brown pink, and I used red matter lake. Red matter lake. To make it a bit more reddish violet. Okay. And I just did that as a matter of impulse. And I think that when you're, when you're, choosing an imprimatura color you want something that is probably earth tone um Mm -hmm. probably anywhere in the range from neutral to warm but not cool um and um it could really be any variant of that i mean i think earth greens can work really well browns right cool browns to to hot browns yeah okay so then they after you're working with Step one there. That's yeah. the trace drawing. That is your umber and a little bit of, uh, you know, it looks like you've lifted off a little on the on the side of the temple, or maybe yep. you avoided that. Then, next stage, we're dealing with the white there, right? Yeah, and that's that's my favorite stage. This is called the velatura. The velatura. Yeah, it's velatura. a beautiful word, right? Yeah. And it it literally translates from Italian to make a veil. Oh, okay, yeah. to make mm-hmm. a veil. So what you're doing is you're applying cloudy layers of white. And, you know, historically that's going to be lead white. And lead white is, is amazing because it has simultaneously, it seems to have just the right amount of opacity versus a little, maybe a touch of transparency to it. So when you, when you get it real thin with lead, I mm-hmm. mean, in zinc, when it's real thin, it's blue. Right. But with lead, what's happening? It's, it takes on the warmth of the... Well, it, lead is, a, it is the warmest of the whites, with titanium being neutral and zinc being the coldest. But it's, um, it's, and it's still going to be any white that you apply transparently over a darker ground, you're going to get something called cool. an optical cool. Yeah. And that's actually a desired effect. So they're all going to be cool um, when you drag them transparently over a darker ground or an imprimatura. Uh, but of the whites, lead white has, has a lot of special properties to it that make it different and unique from the more standard whites that we use. Uh, most people use today, zinc and titanium. But, but lead has this, I find it almost has, when you really put it on thick and just, um, you know, true out of the tube, it almost has this orangish or pinkish glow to it that's kind of ineffable. It's just this... Yeah. This mysterious warmth. Looks like it. skin already. It looks like skin already. Yeah. Exactly. That's interesting. And I think that's why 
Well, I mean, historically, it was the only white that uh, white pigment that artists had available to them at first. Right. But it, it also happened to, you know, as Sophia just said, it looks like skin, and it it behaves similar to flesh in a lot of ways, where it has a, a thicker, taffier consistency to it. It can be stretchy. It has. Um, if, if it's the, if it's a lead white that I like, it has a ropey consistency, or it's a long fiber, almost like a stack white or something. Stack lead white, yeah, yeah. yeah. stack lead white process. It's so interesting how intimately you know this particular color. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh my god. Well, you know, I went went you know go through art school like a lot of us did, and we're, of course we're just gonna pick some titanium white off the shelf. And you know what? Actually, titanium white is great stuff. And yeah, occasionally I pick up a tube of titanium white to paint with, and I'm like, oh, I missed this. This is great. Yeah. So I love it's titanium. It's like a jackhammer white. white. <laughs> it is so good. Yeah. I mean, it just gets the job done. It really. Uh-huh. And if I'm painting, if I'm let's say if I'm painting landscape, and occasionally I do, and I, one of the classes I teach is a plain air painting class. Okay. I, I usually go for titanium white, but anything else, um, and I've been using lead white for for years now, and it just, it, as a figure painter, it's, I just, you can't beat it because of its, its uh, body, its, its long fiberness, and its ability to be opaque and transparent, the warmth and vibrancy of life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that it has. I'm looking through this magazine right now. I mean, we're making you go through this for real. I mean, <laughs> I'm enjoying it. It's amazing. It seems like the two most sensitive moments in this process uh-huh. are right when you do the first layer of the imprimatura and then yeah. the first layer of velatura. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk about something that I don't think gets talked about enough, which is the consistency of the paint, mm-hmm. because. You use things like becomes milky and cloudy, p- applied in a wet manner, brushing mm-hmm. opaque open into wetness. So what does that what does that mean for the painter? Because sure. that's that's a very sensitive moment. It's very sensitive. And you can't if you do it wrong, you you can't really. That's right. Put it on. No, you're How exactly you know? right. You're exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Here's the thing. So doing the imprimatur, which means you're putting on the the earth tone wash, and you're get, about you're getting ready to wipe into that. Um, as a lot of people have learned the hard way, uh, our natural inc- inclination, unfortunately, is to turn it transparently by adding a lot of medium to it. And, and that would work. I mean, it's going to turn it transparent. But now you've got something that's incredibly wet and slippery and slidey. So slippery. And yeah. what you find is even the slightest just tip, you know, touch with the rag will completely remove it 100%. So you go that's back. That's what happens to me. Yeah. So, so what I found is that um, the other way, there's a whole other way to make paint transparent, is just use friction and yeah. scrub it out until it's thin and transparent. Well, and that might be. The paint, then. It, it could be. Uh, rubbing into that works. It might be a little bit on the pasty side, right. but it actually works better to do it that way than if you create a glaze or transparency with medium only. So I think here's what I aim for. I add a little bit of medium to the paint. And so when I think, how am I going to turn this paint transparent? I think I'm going to do it 80% by friction, 20% by medium. I'm just making that up. That's just just my intuition. And so it's got a little bit of fluidity to it because it's got wetness from the medium, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, a drop of oil or whatever stage you're at in your medium. 
Um, and then I'm just scrubbing it on. So scrubbing it on and, and letting it be transparent through by virtue of friction gives you more traction in the paint oh when you're rubbing and removing with the uh, rag. And so, yeah, Sophia was saying it's so sensitive. And the, and the picture, <laughs> the picture, yeah, the picture in the, in the, in the magazine, you can see I'm rubbing with the rag and removing the imprimatura and creating the values in the form that way. Um, I'm able to get such a nice transition out of it, of a transition of values. Yes. Because the paint is yes. relatively stiff. It's, it's transparent, stiff but it's relatively stiff. Uh-huh. When you, it reminds when, me of like, sorry. Sorry, yeah. I, I was just curious, like when you say scrubbing, are you, are you talking about scrubbing it in with the a paintbrush? Like, can you be more specific? Well, it's been applied with the with the paintbrush, mm-hmm. and then now it's I'm scrubbing with the rag. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so I'm removing, subtracting with the rag. Okay. And so there's a little bit of I say scrub because there's you put your finger in the rag very often, and then you're rubbing the wet imprimatur layer, and you're subtracting it in, in the in the act of doing that. So you would never cool. oil out beforehand. No. Kind of. Well, oiling out. I love oiling out, and it and it is not not at this stage. No, but not in the imprimatur. Yeah, m- later on, it's 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 essential in in, a, in later layers for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's essential, but. I think, you know, in every layer that I make a painting, I do want to get the surface wet. And in this particular layer, it is wet um, by virtue of applying the imprimatur glaze. Mm-hmm. So there would be no need to oil out. It would just be redundant if you oiled out and then, then applied the glaze. So, yes. It's just, yeah, you've got yeah. too much medium there right. now. You have to wipe it off a little bit if you did that. Okay. And the, what, what mediums are you, you, are you graduating those with solvent at the beginning or what? Yeah. Over time, I've I've come to settle on a medium that I like a lot, and whenever I experiment with something else, I always end up just going back to this medium, which is really just a simple mixture of walnut oil and Gamsol. Yeah, and, I love it. I love that. Medium. Yeah, and I found, uh, for a number of reasons, um, uh, the studio never has a heavy odor to it. You yeah. know, like when I walk in, like it, it just it smells nice, but not there's no heavy fume in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, not that, not that linseed oil has a heavy fume, but it has a, it can have an intense odor, a natural one, but it's intense. Mm-hmm. The, the thing about linseed oil is that when it dries, it passes through a stage of stickiness that stickiness. I don't like. Yeah. And it, and during that time, it attracts all kinds of lint and dust. Yep. And walnut <laughs> doesn't do that. Well, yeah, this is, I always do this joke. It's like, here's the life cycle of, of linseed oil as it dries. So it's, Wet, sticky, dry, and th- and then here's the life cycle of walnut oil. Wet, dry, <laughs> and it's really crazy. But it just dries all of a sudden, but it stays wet longer. Huh. And for some reason, because it's not sticky, it's not grabbing a hold of lint in the same way that linseed yeah. oil does. I'm so, a fan of I'm a fan of linseed, but I have to turn my paintings to the wall sometimes. Yeah, it's like it just they get so linty. Yeah. Get yeah, those little fuzzies on them. Little fuzzies. Yeah, everywhere. it's it's oh. just mm-hmm. lint that's being kicked up, and yeah, if you if you do use linseed oil, you've got to have strategies to try to cut down on dust. Yeah, exactly. And and walnut doesn't seem to have that problem. I mean, I'm sure a little bit, but not as not nearly as much as linseed. And of course, walnut doesn't yellow as much as linseed oil. Right. Um, and so I I use that, but I recently I've also been. Adding into the medium, I've been playing with some thicker gel-like mediums. Um, I've been using Italian varnish, okay. which is uh, it's black oil and beeswax. 
uh, and and it's uh, and with prepared with a little bit of turpentine. I love black oil. Yeah, black oil. So you mix that into your walnut too. Yeah. So you're like, or I'll have it on the side as a paste, and I add it with the brush to the paint based okay. on you okay. know the mixture at the at the moment. Okay. Yeah. Another good one that I like is uh, walnut oil gel, which is really just walnut oil with fumed silica, uh, which gives you, you know, there's there's no fume to that whatsoever, mm. no no solvents. It's just a thick, pasty, clear uh, walnut oil. And um, that can add a more of a gel-like state, which is actually really great for glazing or for imprimaturas because it's mm. not going to drip on you. Mm-hmm. Um, it also totally gets rid of the whole repelling problem if you've ever applied a glaze. Or if you've ever oiled out and, and then watched up, the glaze. like sweats. Yes, yeah. exactly. It re- uh, repels. Uh-huh. Uh, re- you know, it retracts on the surface like a like a marker on a shiny uh-huh, surface. Uh-huh. You know, it's just the, the marker, the ink doesn't stick. So oil paintings do that all the time if you're glazing. Or, and even varnish can do that uh, sometimes. But um, the gel, or these gel-like mediums, uh, they don't, uh, they won't recoil like that. Huh, so Interesting. When you're applying, or you're saying after they've been applied, and you add the next layer, it doesn't do that. I've been doing it both. I've been I've been doing it when I'm applying the glaze. I put a little bit of the gel mediums in there these days, and I'm also doing it um, if I'm oiling out or uh, if I. Here's when I I really like it is when I'm I'm working in a manner uh, where I'm actually on, I'm actually, let's say full color form painting and I'm actually rendering and turning form with full color. Um, and I'm starting to hit a threshold in the paint where it's a little on the transparent side, uh, which means there's probably more medium in it and it's getting more washy. Uh, sometimes you, you know, you put down some great work, some, you know, critical brushstrokes and then they recoil or they, they, they retract, they beat up. Um, so if you add in some gel medium at that point, you know, and this could be one of so many things. It could be the Italian varnish. It could be the walnut oil gel. It could be Merge medium. If Merge you're not afraid is of great. that stuff. Yeah, it's great. Um, it could be oleo pasto gel. Mm-hmm. Anything that's gel-like, it's just going to stop that uh, beating up effect. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And you're kind of like using maybe... Twenty-five percent solvent or something at the beginning, all the way up to. I, you know, yeah, I did actually. I did. I used to start, and I, I what I do is I pre-mix a couple of bottles mm-hmm. with with walnut oil and gamsol, and I used to. My number one was fifty-fifty, and then uh-huh. I when I ratchet up fifteen percent oil each time. Okay. And then I had a conservator kind of scare me and say, well, you know, anytime you lower the threshold below eighty-five percent oil. You're actually compromising the bond quality of the paint. Really, and bond. Yeah, like its ability to bond to the, the surface, lamination, to, to glue itself. And and that- see, because I called I called Gamblin about this question a while back, and shout out to Marriott Gamblin. She's she's great, but she was saying you could do ten percent and you're going to be fine for the huh. first few layers. So interesting. I don't. It, I was that. Fascinated me because I like lean paint, and I was like, "Good, yeah, that'll, yeah." I don't give me. I've got a number of answers on this. I think this this eighty five percent thing comes secondhand to me, also from Gamblin, though. Oh, really? And, yeah, it came to me through a, a really reputable um, uh, art store where I live in in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, mm-hmm. and it's just like a long history and tradition to it, and they really pride themselves on on. Um, 
uh, knowing their materials well. And it's called Lens Arts. It's in Santa Cruz, California. Okay. And um, and they told me this. From, they got the word from Gambling. But I've also written to um, I've, I've written to I wrote to Gambling to Will to uh, Golden. Um, I think both of them answered the question similar to what you heard, which is that you know it really doesn't matter how lean you're going on the first layer actually as long as what comes next yeah has sufficient uh fatty content meaning oil content to Uh it it's essentially gonna it's not only is it gonna seep down through that preliminary layer and create a bond that way but it's also just creating kind of like almost like a lamination on top of it yeah and securing it down so it's, because it's, I, I met all these painters. Uh, I was teaching at uh, LAFA, the Los Angeles Academy of Figurative Art, for a year, and there's sort of the school of painters where they all like to start their paintings with just tons turp. of turpentine. Turpin yeah. mm-hmm. That's how we did it at the lead. Yeah, too. Tons well, of turp. yeah. And and I was in charge of of writing the curriculum for them as as they were going through accreditation. And one of our classes was materials and techniques, and so I was coming from more of an East Coast tradition, just saying, I, I don't think this full turpinoid turpentine solvent wash at the beginning is good because you're just you're completely destroying the bond quality of the paint so i reached out to all these companies they said you know what it's actually fine as long as you're using adequate uh, oil in the subsequent layers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's so it's crazy how complicated all this is yeah you have to be almost like a scientist for it well you just don't want your paintings to come flaking off. off At least not in our lifetime. <laughs> I've had it. I've had a few that you could just scrape off with your fingernail because I've done yeah. some step weird. Yeah. And more than anything, I, t- I think the big snag is when I'm looking to reuse an old canvas. Yeah. It's like and start painting back over that. It's like it's so hard to bond to that. You know? Yeah, because that's so fatty. It got fat, way fat already. Yeah. And, and now you're throwing a lean back. layer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a recipe for disaster. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> So what's next? You've got your, uh, you call it, M, uh, Bellatora. Bellatora, yeah. which I would call closed grisaille at that point. Usually. Oh, okay. Like closing down. I wasn't familiar with that term. Yeah, it's term. like open and closed, I guess, is similar to what you're saying, but you call it Bellatora. And then, so you have essentially an opaque light mass, transparent earth shadows. Yes. And then you start color. How do you go... Is that do you do any direct mixing and painting on top, or is it just? Yeah. So the next layer after the velatura is dry, right? So your your as you say your closed grisaille, your your layer of white is now dry, um, and we're really ready to you know make it happen. Um, I start with what I call full. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I start with a, what's called a, a working glaze, and this is a glaze of a transparent color that's applied. And usually you're, you're picking a color that you feel is going to help you accomplish um, your color mixing goals. You know, so it might just be closest to the local color of what you're going for. Okay. You know, in other words, if the model has a yellowish uh, hue and like skin, ochre. you could be using ochre. You could be using raw sienna. You could be using um, I Love Transparent Yellow Oxide. That is like my favorite yeah, color. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's like my favorite I color. use it both for glazes and just for straight up you know, direct mixtures. Yeah, same here. Yeah, it's oh, cool. so universal. And actually, the, the Sennelius brown pink gets close to that color, oh. too. So yeah, it's yeah. a wonderful color. It's like yeah. this golden brown with a bit of green in it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and uh, so I think in, in, in a lot of cases, I'm throwing down 
uh, hybrid mixtures for my working glaze. So it could be transparent yellow oxides and burnt sienna. Um, could be black. Could be a little bit of red matter lake. In all cases, though, they are uh, transparent pigments. You know, so I'm not right. going to glaze with like cadmium red. I'm not going to glaze right. with um, right. with um, uh, you know cadmium yellow or a white or anything mm-hmm. like that. So uh, or yellow ochre. You know, anything right. opaque. Too you're not opaque. Use. Yeah, too opaque. Right. Um, while that glaze is wet, and again, just like the just like the imprimatura stage, we need this glaze to be transparent by virtue of uh, friction, and not through medium. Because you, you didn't oil out this, you know. Okay. Yeah, and you're not adding a lot of medium. You're adding maybe a drop of medium. Okay. And then you're applying it and scrubbing it on with a brush so that it, you're using friction to push it out thin. I even. Before I start my full color form pass, I, I take the rag and I just gently scathe it over the surface to try to get a little bit of excess oil off. Hmm. And once that's done, uh, I'm now making uh, what, what I call the full color form pass. And I'm just going over the surface um, with full palette of colors. So whatever your, your full palette happens to be for you, you've laid them all out and you're essentially doing what a direct painter would do, except that you're constantly being assisted and aided by the underpainting. And you're constantly, it's constantly suggesting to you, uh, hey, instead of trying to accomplish uh, this value change by virtue of direct mixture, maybe you could accomplish it by just thinning out the paint that you have oh on God, your brush. God, I know this problem. Right. It's and, a problem for me, but yeah. you're seeing it as a yeah. an aid. It's an aid. Oh, yeah. Well, and I'm just picking this up from, from you know, uh, 20 years now of looking at, um, or more than 20 years. I think I kind of started looking at paintings like this in this, you know, probing manner at about age 18. And I'm 43 now. So um, it, it just looking at old master paintings and noticing that um, they're making these form passes, but they're allowing the underpainting to show through. Suggests to show through. Yeah. what to do. And, and a lot of their goals are accomplished through letting this overpass that they're making in full color be pretty transparent, especially where it starts to leave brighter values where the highlights and, and brighter lights live. And as it approaches half tones, and definitely as it you know dissipates into the shadow, they're making this paint more and more transparent, even though they're using a full color palette. But doesn't that make the paint feel more gray? Because it's made of like optical grays and and you think in the in the moment while you're putting that oh this is cool and this is warm yeah but then later you're like oh shit this is all gray yeah well what you're doing is is you're trying to optimize where that would work and here's here's the thing that i found really liberating is that and i and then once i found this liberating i thought you know what i, I think i see the old masters doing this too um they're only they're only letting it work where it works and where it doesn't work, they're simply pushing the paint into a more op- opaque state and uh, making the color mixtures more directly. Huh. So, so they're just making it work where it, it where it does work, and where it doesn't work, they don't do it. Case in point: last <laughs> night I was at the Met, and I was looking at um, one of Rembrandt's uh, paintings. You know, they have they have all the Dutch paintings in the in the Lehman collection area now. Yeah, and um, I know that. You know, we can't show this on the podcast, but like I'm, I'm just passing around this close-up of uh, one of Rembrandt's portraits in the Met, and what you'll see is that the cast shadow next to the nose 
fully transparent underpainting. Yeah. And the reflected light next door to it, almost adjacent to it, opaque. So he's – and this this is kind of the spirit of indirect painting that, that I, I've realized the old masters simply did. They let it work when it worked. And when it doesn't work, you go more direct. Yeah. You know, you do what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. But but the underpainting is there to, um, to you know, catch you and help you and assist you. And it kind of becomes a game about where can I let the underpainting breathe through. And that's, then it's, that's how I view it. I just yeah. want like I in, and like you were saying, shadows are the perfect spot to let it breathe the most. Yeah. Do you, do you consider it a thing where I know there are some of these indirect painters that almost will work like a printer, like be, okay, I'm going to do a pass of Indian yellow, then a violet pass, and somehow I'll end up with the right skin color. Do you think of it that way? Like, I can't do that, no. I, I, I don't either. Yeah, no. I, that's too, um, that's, that just sounds too. It sounds anal- like math. Yeah. It's math, right? And it feels like the painting's done when the, the layers are done <laughs> yeah. rather than you reacting to it. Yeah. yeah. It's like a recipe that you're following. And I, I just don't, I don't think I, I'd be good at that. Mm. Um, I, I, I like, you, like you're saying, you know, working at it, reacting to it, does it look good or not look good? Right, right. And you're, you're going to keep pushing it and working with it to get something that feels like a satisfactory result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have your hand up? Yeah, I was, it's about color. Yeah. I feel like when I'm pushing a painting, I mean, I work pretty aggressively in black and white right now. Mm-hmm. My first layers in, in acrylic. Mm-hmm. Charcoal, acrylic, gesso. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ends up being, you know, my version of the Velatura, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I have... That's your underpainting. My underpainting. And yeah. then when I start to add the color, and let's say I do, I could even do my initial painting in in um, Venetian red and white. Yeah. With with uh, this weird kind of sappy green. What's that green? Shit. Sap green. It's not sap green. Terravert. It's a, terravert. Yeah, so like those, I could do a painting in just terra verde and white, yeah. or just Venetian red and white. And then when I start adding the color, which you're saying is achieved with these optical grays, and then, and then thinking about temperature, how do you, how do you really push the color without losing the grisaille? How do you actually do that? You, do you just keep putting layers and layers and layers, or? Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah, because then I lose I lose what was fresh about that the underpainting, in, the initial underpainting. Yeah, well, I that's hard to answer. Uh, you know, I mean, you have a good question. I, I'm not sure what happens there. There's, there's a bit of magic, I think, that. But to, but to try to answer it, I feel like whenever I make a, a form pass using full color, for me, I see the form improve so much by doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm able to get more subtle transitions than I had in the underpainting. Uh, certainly the color is now coming about. Um, and I'm able to start showing differences between opaque passes, transparent passes. And so this this whole complexus builds up in the painting um, that, that I look forward to. So there's there's not like a fear of losing what was in the underpainting. And because that can certainly be a factor. And, and I know when I teach students this, these techniques, they often 
fallen in love with the imprimatura and are afraid to fall, to move forward into the velator. Then they, when they when they have the confidence to move forward into the velator, they fall in love with that, and they're scared to go full color on top. But what they find is that each layer just, and this is one of the virtues of the whole system and tradition of of indirect painting is that they do really benefit the painting and tend to look better with each stage. So I just look forward to doing each each layer. I, and um, there's all kinds of surprises that happen in the paint, you know, where, where I thought I might go transparent or opaque sometimes changes on me. You just have to listen. You've got to listen to the paint. Even in terms of, like, yeah. thickness and thinness, yeah. a medium or dry. Yeah. Okay. And, and sometimes you can give something a chance. You could say, well, I'm going to try this as a semi-transparent slash semi-opaque wash of color and you can live with it for a day and if you decide it's not working you can make a more opaque harder form pass where you really resolve the issues of form that you're looking for i think the hardest thing to conceive of for for learning indirect painting is glazing in the light mass and how does that turn into skin yeah what are your favorite colors we talked about transparent yellow earth um but what are your favorite colors for glazing skin? Do you ever get into something like ultramarine blue or anything yeah. like that? I'll I'll use any any um uh any of the transparent colors on my palette that um help me you know achieve kind of the larger arc of of uh, color goals that are happening. Sometimes it's just a temperature thing. Like I I need to be warm here, or in fact I need to be cool over here. So okay. So favorite colors to glaze with, um, sap green is one. Um, yeah, su- surprising is, um, is, is black, any black. I love glazing with black and then painting into a, wet, a glaze of black. Because oh, it, it's just so beautiful, it, it, it cools everything off. Like an ivory black? Yeah, ivory black or lamp black. I use bone black on my palette these days. Um, and it's beautiful. The first time I, I think I accidentally tried a, a black glaze and I painted into it. I was shocked at, you know, it just, it, it did so many things all at once. That's great. Um, That's great. But so those are a couple, um, I, I like to glaze into sometimes I'll, like you suggested, mix, um, ultramarine blue into some of the mixtures. Um, uh, phthalo, phthalo blue is super powerful, but, but I mean, you just take a tiny little, the essence of it and it can make a great glaze. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. I've been really diving into phthalo blue. Yeah. It's like, it was one of those colors, like, almost every teacher universally told me to stay away from it. You know, you don't need that. Don't use it. It can be deadly if you use it too too much. I saw a a, a meme on on social media that somebody posted that I just, it was hysterical to me. Because they they took Jack Nicholson from uh, A Few Good Men and he's screaming the iconic line, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. But they they changed it to um, you want the phthalo blue, <laughs> you can't handle the phthalo blue, which is true. I mean, it's so a fleck of it's it. It's so great. Yeah, just a fleck of phthalo blue will will suit you for an entire painting, and you know. But it's a wonderful so color if you know that. That all you need is a grain of it. Yeah. In any given mixture, and it, it's beautiful. Do you do you use magenta like a transparent magenta? Or? No, I don't have any purples on my palette i i have oh, really? yeah i have red matter lake um i have rose matter genuine so i'm those are the crimsons mm-hmm. 
And then I've got, I use Ultramarine Blue, Thalo Blue, and I use, uh, um, sorry, Cerulean. Okay. Yeah. Cerulean's a little more opaque, so you're kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah. you're still glazing that on. It could, yeah, you can push it's Cerulean. Both, in. both ways. Yeah, you can kind of push it and convince it to be a glaze. Yeah. <laughs> so I've done that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I just want to... This has been all super technical. Yeah. I want to take one little step into a conceptual yeah, please. realm yes. here. Yeah. Um, and it's about the mind's eye. Mm-hmm. I've noticed, you know, I've, I've painted a lot of different ways. But when I try harnessing a slower technique, an indirect technique, mm-hmm. there's moments when I'm moving. It's usually when I'm in the color area. I'm starting to move into color and mm-hmm. I'm building, building the painting. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to imagine flesh. Do you, I guess my question is, <laughs> can you talk about that? <laughs> what, it, what it means to imagine the sensation of flesh so that it doesn't turn into plastic. Yeah. But that it, it, it's soft or supple or turning. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. The pores, the the way, the texture of skin under light. I mean, you have to really imagine that to paint it. You can't just keep applying no. paint layer after paint layer. I mean, you're gonna kill it. So I I guess I want to yeah. talk about that if yeah. if you could. Sure, that's a really great question. But that and I think it goes to the kind of the the top of what we do as figure painters. You know, is because there's all these formal issues try to grapple with when you're a student about form and it doesn't matter what the form is it could be it could be a a vase you know in still life it could be um you know a ball or it could be a a glass you know it could be um uh, the human body so just trying to turn form takes forever but then then you're painting the figure and you're and you're really it becomes your thing that you do and and then this issue that you just described comes up and I think you start to tune into these different properties of flesh. One of them is that it isn't fully opaque. You know, it it is a little bit transparent. The light seems to go through it. Mm -hmm. We know it's porous. So there's that feeling to it. Um, There's also the feeling that flesh is pulled onto a form. You know, like it's our exterior layer. So there's a whole substructure underneath it. And of course, you know, the artist goes through years of studying. Well, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but um, they study all this anatomy, musculoskeletal structure, and they think about that being wrapped by this layer, this covering that has elasticity to it, um, but also has uh, flaws to it. You know, it ages, it, it, it wrinkles and sags, but it's pulled by gravity, it's also pulled by tension, and it is fibrous. Mm. So I find it, it it's a beautiful marriage for um, for artists because, and especially looking at Renaissance traditions of, of drawing where artists are hatching their lines, you know, and they're thinking about how, how these hatches sit on the form and, and pull the sense of cross contour around the turning form. Mm. Um, they're thinking, not only sculpturally, but they're thinking about these striations of form, and then it 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 matches the feeling of striations and fibers to the flesh. So there's a beautiful marriage between how an artist might 
um, work up the feeling of form and structure, but also then the behavior of flesh being being pulled onto the form. Mm. So, um, yeah, you've got to, I think you have, like you suggested, you have to put yourself in the mind of what the flesh feels like. Mm. Mm-hmm. Then there's other poetic ideas, like the flesh is, um, it's warm, it's alive. Um, you, you know, it's, it's um, it can be, you know, wet and shiny, it can be dry. Um, and, and the light is hit, both hitting it on its surface, but also penetrating, penetrating it through yeah. and bouncing back out of it. And then, um, then there's all these, you know, depending on different religious traditions, you look at as different spiritual implications of the flesh. Well, Christianity, first and foremost, the idea of the body, you know, we all know whose body we're talking about. And the word became flesh. Yes, there's that. And so when we're, we're painting flesh, and, and I mean, and quite literally, when you're looking at master paintings by, by uh, Caravaggio or by you know, Roger van der Weyden, they're working directly in that analogy, that the flesh is not just a figure painting, but it stands for something for the viewer, very important and poignant in its function. Oh, I'm happy we're headed in that direction because that was a, a question I was going to ask you. And it seems like you're we're leaning towards the answer. Like, why paint figures? What does it mean to you to paint so many figures in, a, in an image? Is it, it seems like that earlier what you were speaking is almost like an al- allegorical interpretation of them. Yeah, um, right. What what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Why do it? In this yeah, why age? do it? Yeah, that's a great question. My my answer, I feel like my answer to that has changed over the years, you know, from when I was a student to, to now. But it, um, I mean, really, it's it's just for obvious reasons. It's the most powerful tool that we have to um, grapple with the the big question of um, what does it all mean. So, in other words. Mm-hmm. The meaning of existence, you know, what what meaning is there? Um, why are we here? And uh, what are we doing? And how do we make um, how do we make it important and feel meaningful? And so we go on this journey to both fulfill the need to have meaning in our lives, but also to find out what the meaning is. Mm-hmm. And you could you could talk about those issues allegorically, you know, I suppose through through still life through landscape painting. And those are those are beautiful ways to explore. But I mean, for obvious reasons, using the figure as a tool it represents us. We recognize ourselves in it, and we empathize with it. Right. Yeah. Just for, I think for that reason um, is is a big one. But um, probably a sim- similar answer. But I I also just really love human anatomy, and I've studied it in depth and. I've put a lot of time and study into anatomy, um, probably more than I care to think about or, or should have, yeah. but I obsessed about it. And um, um, and I don't want that to go to waste. And I, I've, it's a wonderful marriage of having put all this scientific study in my life to good use with an artistic outlet. Well, I think I think I'm I feel similar to you in that. I love image making and sometimes uh, that led me to like, we just had a very technical 
conversation about paint, and we could probably talk about the color ultramarine blue and its and its properties for hours. You know, yeah, we love that stuff. And then anatomy is another avenue that we studied. And then it's like you and I are both figure painters, and sometimes getting them outside of the studio, people's interpretation is quite different yeah. than our. You know, it's like yeah. all of a sudden they're like, oh, it's painting nude people isn't that strange or whatever and yeah. it's like whoa i didn't even think about that i'm just like absolutely i've been on this search to understand humans and pain and texture forever and that's that's what i'm doing yeah <laughs> and it's completely misread totally misread yeah. yeah how do you how do you feel when your painting gets misread in that way what's your response or oh god i mean we all have to deal with that you know i mean i think like even vincent desiderio has to deal with that yeah. I suppose when he gets the wrong audience in front of his paintings, you know. Right. And 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 but not just Vince. Like I've I've been to the Met and overheard um, like a docent leading a private tour to a couple going around the museum, and the comments just totally asinine. Uh huh. And just like you're missing the whole point, guys. You know, mm-hmm. like they're looking at literal things in the painting and re- and responding to that, and mm-hmm. instead of the way it's painted or, you know, potential yeah. symbolisms within the painting. Um, they're just, yeah, they're just missing the point altogether. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I part of me says, well, our culture is losing its ability to read iconography. We're losing a connection to the past and symbolism. Um, we're just largely uneducated about art history, maybe. And, you know, I think part of me is willing to just live in this enclave of those of us that are in the know, I suppose. I mean, I got, what other choice do I have? Absolutely. <laughs> it, it reminds me of this. Uh, I was reading it before, and it's on my phone, and it was talking about uh, a, a quote that Joseph Campbell had. Okay. And he says... Yeah. That um, is good. So basically, he says, myths are vehicles of communication between the conscious and the unconscious, just as dreams are. And then this is where he really gets going. The trouble is, uh, Campbell asserts, that this communication has broken down in the modern Western world. The old myths are no longer operative, and effective new myths have not arisen to replace them. As a result, he maintains the West is going through an agony of reorientation, matched only by a period uh, during the fourth millennium, when the Sumerians first conceived the concept of a mathematically ordered cosmos and thus changed utterly man's concept of the universe around him. So basically he's saying because people are so out of touch with myths and what we were talking about, they're, they're totally need, need a reorientation. Absolutely. Uh, you agree with that? I love Joseph Campbell and, and he, he, every time I hear a quote, it just hits me. Like, uh-huh. My God, <laughs> that's so right on. And, and, you know, just think about why why is that happening to us, uh, to our world, and some of it is probably unavoidable. And, and you know, the more we understand about the universe, I suppose, from scientific understanding, the more people abandon mythology and faith, um, which I'm not I'm not you know opposed to. I just I how do we get around that? How do we how do we hold on to myth? And and um, and cosmologies, right? And some of those are religious faiths as well, and um, but also move forward in our you know deeper and deeper and deeper understandings of our scientific 
universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, and this is why I think we'll be okay as artists, is that we are somewhere deep in our DNA where we are constructed to search for the meaning. Like it's within mm-hmm. our genetic, our DNA makeup that we must find meaning to what we're doing. I mean, why else would we have created myths in the first place? Right, exactly. Uh, and, and so because there's this need to do that, um, it I think it gets fulfilled in, in um, well, in my opinion, in some stupid ways. Um, and I, I may lose a lot of listeners here, but um, one thing that I'm pushing up against all the time, and you may experience this too because we're the same generation, is the force of anime. Mm. And um, I have a lot of my younger students, my younger college students, and I have to, it literally says on my syllabus that my courses are an anime-free zone. Because if I don't say that, it's just, it's all anime in the homeworks and the notebooks. Uh, On the, you know, the breaks with the model, they're doing anime on the margins. uh, Or they're converting their figure drawing into an anime figure. So it's, you know, verboten in my class, but you have to ask a deeper question of why are they doing it? And what are they drawing? They're drawing these, these anime heroes. So they're different types of, they're warriors, they're like uh, princess queens, uh, different kinds of superheroes. Hmm. And these are, they're grappling for, they're, they're grasping for a myth of some kind. Mm-hmm. The, the, and back to Campbell, the hero's journey. We're so hungry for the hero's journey. Yeah. And the story of mythology, the, the, the many stories of mythology are about heroes' journeys, um, you know, going into the fire and back out of the fire and, and, and doing so, creating a, 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 a mythos around our cosmology. Mm-hmm. And I feel that we, on just this deep primal level, we need that. Mm-hmm. And so when we're making figure paintings that either overtly deal with or or have a subcontext a subconscious um uh dealing with with these issues that i think we're still on the right track this kind of reminded me of something that ben morea said when he came in and he was talking about how a creative mind well just the human mind is it needs to be fed a creative sustenance as part of its existence it needs to create as part of its existence and every person is aching for that um i don't know how to sum up what what i'm trying to say but it, it kind of resonates with me yeah. what you're saying because yeah. it's it's I so feel like true that's, that's the same thing really yeah. that's our hunger yeah. to create drove us through all the like we were talking about the anatomy and the colors and the really geeky aspects of this that we've all in this room delved so deep into. And I think it's, it's, it's personally hurtful to me when I see, I know what you're saying about anime because when I'm doing something that vigilant and that sincere Mm -hmm. and then it gets in a place and it's like you could see people just wanting to like snicker at nude people or something. It yeah. really feels weird. Yeah. And I can't help but think, well, it's because people aren't capable. They're not diving deep, you know? Like I think of probably, my, probably 
said it a thousand times, my favorite story in the world is that epic of Gilgamesh. And that is such a heavy, such a heavy story. And then some people are like, why don't they make that into a movie? And it's like, well, it won't sell toys to eight-year-olds. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I think our stories right now are so safe and bland to sell plastic to eight-year-olds. And it it does feel very reduced to me. Yeah, it is. It's it's stripped down to this kind of emergency state of fulfilling our need for heroes. Uh Uh-huh. Um... Emergency state, yeah, 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 but, triaged. <laughs> but they have no depth to them. No depth. Yeah, because depth is hard and depth is really painful. Yeah, to look at, like the conclusion of Gilgamesh is the things you love, you'll lose and you'll ponder your yeah. own existence inevitably. Right. And it's like, how are you going to sell a toy with that message? Right. Well, <laughs> and then all of the the panoply of 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 Greek and Roman. Uh, mythological heroes and gods and mortals, each one was set up to deal with a different facet of our human existence. Yeah, absolutely. To explain it to to humanity uh, in this poetic way. So there's this marriage of art and uh, a meaning of existence. And and I think that the evidence that this is what we're about, you know, our human nature is that you could strip it all the way down to its... Um, it's inception of um, of the is it the caves of Altamira or one of the caves where you've just got stick figures essentially hunting you know bison um, or four legged mammals of some kind just depicting this fact that this is what I do this is an act that I do that I survive through and but you have to look at the fact that it was done through the language of art <laughs> it. It involved essentially an artist make, uh, making a communication to a viewer that says, I do this and therefore I survive. Right. And even more primal than that would be, I think, these hand imprint paintings where the artist sprays paint onto the yes, rock wall. Yes, those are so powerful. That's all it is. I am here. I I'm exist. I'm here. I did something. That's like, to me, and I think those might even come later than like the cave paintings of Altamira, but mm-hmm. they... Um, they, they it's just this affirmation that I exist. Yeah, and so they actually blow the paint onto, onto their, their mouths. Yep. Yeah, it's so amazing. Yeah, are you in your work? Are you looking to tell that story? Are you looking to communicate a different truth? If so, like what is it that you're looking to communicate? What What's your story? Well, if you look at a lot of my paintings, there's change the painting. Let's look at some more. There's a there's some kind of divine force. Um, it might be a mythological one, or it could be um, a figure from Judeo-Christian um, narrative. Are you, are you Christian? Uh, I did grow up in a in a Christian background, but my family is culturally Jewish, okay. so I have um, a background of both traditions. Okay. Um, and and then to throw into the mix, um, I had a mother who pushed a lot of. Um, Greek mythology on me as a child. Okay. She gave me, uh, I have a little, I still have, it's a little paperback of Edith, Ham- Edith Hamilton's it's a great book. classical mythology, and it was easy to read as a child, and I did. Uh. And so put all those things together, and I, you know, that's where I'm at. Um, so there's, but one of the common threads that I love is the confrontation of divine force with the mortal force. 
And I think a, a painting that I saw at a young age that really hit me at a gut level was Ribera's painting, uh, Giuseppe de Ribera, the, the, the 17th century uh, Spanish painter in Italy, um, painted um, St. Jerome and the Angel of Judgment. And so it's St. Jerome down on the ground, and he's looking up at an angel who's just coming down out of the sky and blowing a horn. Um, and he's got his arms raised in exaltation, you know, but also shock and surprise. And it hit me on a gut level because I realized I loved that idea of interaction or confrontation between, and it could be a good or a bad confrontation, uh, between a mortal and a divine force. And so, like, we're looking at my Bacchus painting right now. Um, and this is really my appropriation of, of Los Barachos, but it's, I've just redone it in my own way, my own composition. And um, I'm actually embellishing it a little bit with more symbolism than Velasquez used in his. Mm-hmm. But it's the same story that Bacchus could just show up magically during lunchtime of some vineyard workers who are there gathering grapes to make the wine. And Bacchus just, you know, is there with his with his um, devotees, and you know, is crowning them with a wreath of of leaves and pouring wine with them, and um, it's just a happy interaction, and it's like a crowning, like where this divine force says, "Yes, you are an official uh, representative of my cause, and right. I am, you know, I hereby crown you with job well done." And, um, you know, so it's very simple, but, but um, you know, it also deals with these, you know, very old themes of, of agricultural harvest and, and that being part of our existence as well. So this idea that the divine is acknowledging the yeah. human and the human is acknowledging the divine. Yeah. And, and when you look at all these Greek mythology stories... I think one of the funnest things about them is that the mortals are always sneaking in and, and angering or pissing off the gods uh-huh. and, and also like winning. Yeah, exactly. And I think secretly we love that idea. We love that, that we little mortals could just become these champions that actually outdo the gods. Yeah, exactly. And you see that evidence of that in the, in mythological stories all the time. Mm-hmm. Do you, have you had moments where you feel like you've, encounter the divine in your in your own life anything like like that oh yeah i i think i've had a lot of um yeah i've had a lot of experiences that um that have you know that have you know i've i've had experiences that feel supernatural to me i'm sure mm-hmm. you've come up with explanations you know that logical explanations as to to rationalize them but um yeah i feel like i've encountered it at different points in my life and would you prefer to believe that it would you prefer to believe that it's supernatural or that it's that it can be explained away through science do you have you know that's that's a hard question to answer i feel like the older i get the more i divert to scientific explanations of things but but i'm also sad about it too like i don't want to lose the wonder and the magic and the belief in uh, spirituality and spiritual forces. And, um, so, uh, I, I feel like half of me is hanging on to it and half of me, you know, also there's a part of me that wants to, you know, take in all the possibles, you know, do you think a painting can be that sort of encounter? Um, 
not necessarily to an artist, but do you think uh, a painting in a museum or a painting you've done can meet someone at a moment and be a helper on their journey or, or anything like that? Do you think there's a yeah. power? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I know so. I've, I've, I've made paintings where um, I, I still, I hear, I, I made a couple of uh, really large altarpieces at a, at a large cathedral in Wisconsin. And I think probably average about once a month I hear from somebody who had a, a deeply meaningful spiritual experience and feelings in front of the paintings or even a um, ceremony was held uh, where the paintings actually functioned as part of that mm. spiritual ritual. Like, like um, iconography. Yes, like iconography, yeah. Mm. So... Um, so I, I and I've you know I've heard directly from people saying that they've they've experienced that. Wow, that's great. What what about in a gallery context? Do you think it it has that same power of painting in a gallery? You know, I think it depends on it. Really depends on the person seeing it. Like mm-hmm. it, it's going to be less. I think the chances are much less though. Mm-hmm. Like they, um, the person going to the gallery to look at art is 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 after probably something different. Right. Then, not necessarily, but probably they're after something different than somebody who's going into a church to look at art. Oh, that's um, such a great. That's such a great, practical but yet beautiful answer. You're, you're, what 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 you're after, you'll get in a way in these experiences. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's really- you you told a story on another another podcast. I heard you say it was during the work you were doing for the cathedral. It yeah, kind of kind of icon paintings, you could say. Yeah. And some workers came down and started to oh, right. pray while they were installing it or something, and the architect said... It wasn't my, it wasn't my work, but it was, it was a story that uh, I heard from the artist John Nava, who's a okay. Los Angeles area painter who painted the tapestries inside the Los Angeles Cathedral. And when he was there, uh, he told me the story when he was there installing the tapestries, um the workers that were constructing the cathedral came down when they installed the corpus, the, the crucifixion at, at the altar and, um, and actually, you know, enacted prayer during the, the installation of it. Yeah. And then the architect said, you're never going to see that in the gallery. That's right. You remember that. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's for that. Yeah. The architect turned to, to John and said that. You're never going to see that in the gallery. Let's take a quick break. Perfect. Okay. Myth is, it's like a language that's dying. Yeah. Right now. So in some ways, you're having to maybe rewrite a myth. What does that mean to write a myth in 2020. Yeah. Well, there's this strange thing that's happening, which is actually kind of nice. Um, and it's taken me by surprise, but, you know, I have all these paintings of Bacchus and Apollo, and um, all of a sudden the kids know about them again because of this author, you know, the uh, Percy Jackson Oh, and yeah. they're heard of that. they're oh. really popular with kids. Like it's basically, I think, when the Harry Potter novels were were done and all, all you know finished, kind of as they were wrapping up, uh, the, these 
I don't fully, I don't know if I'm saying it right, the Percy Jackson and Rick Riordan books for, for, for teens and preteens are equivalent to kind of the, the Harry Potter niche. And they, and they deal with all the characters of Greek mythology. And so suddenly, kid, you know, if I say, well, this is about Bacchus, all the kids go, oh, yeah, they understand what Bacchus means huh. or they understand what Apollo means, you know, and, um, and, and, and they're able to, uh, to maybe read the deeper context of, of Greek myth again simply because it falls into the realm of popular culture again. I don't know if it'll last or if it's just going to be a fad because these books are popular right now. Right. But there is a little tiny resurgence of it where because the the kids that are in high school now and, and even the college students, I think, the young college students now grew up with these books. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of unexpected and, you know, just an article of popular culture that shows it shows that it still does work yeah absolutely and that and that on a deep level even in our youth we want to we want to deal with these topics mm-hmm. yeah you're like lovingly crafting these images with in the indirect method and the the very like layered subject matter and the layered overlapping forms of the people. Mm-hmm. How do you go about organizing mm. just your compositions in general? Is it like a, a photo shoot live models? Is it, how do you, how do you think about the rhythm moving through it? Yeah. I love that question because it, you know, I spent a lot of my time trying to, to f- deal with those problems and I, I'm really drawn to, I guess the term for it is Baroque space. And, um, and this is a way of, of composing that, you know, both Rubens and Caravaggio did really well, where there is um, essentially no diminishment um, in figures from, from foreground to background of the space. Or very, in terms of scale, they're yeah, all the same size. Yeah, they're all the same, almost, you know, maybe they're the same size or... Or you look at some Caravaggio paintings, they don't diminish very much. Not as much as you'd see if you took a photograph of people in those same arrangements. Um, but actually, what there is a very real um, uh, structure to it where, in today's terms of, of uh, telephoto lens photography, if you, if you have an assemblage of a massive assemblage of figures, uh, photographs from a vast distance and then zoomed in, you won't see any diminishment from figures that are, you know, as much as 10 to 15 feet apart. It depends on how far away the, the photograph is taken, the telephoto lens. But anyway, obviously the, you know, Baroque painters, I don't think thought about telephoto lenses, but they did, I think they wanted to think about how they could have these compressed spaces of multiple figure uh, compositions where there wasn't heavy diminishment from the foreground figures to the background figures because they wanted to paint everybody to a certain level of scale and resolution and not have figures feel unimportant that were simply in the back. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so when you look at Rubens and Caravaggio, you see very little diminishment from, from background to foreground in a lot of their works. And, and you know, I was, I was reading, um, I was either reading, I was, yeah, I was reading a biography on, on Caravaggio and the author described the, his working methods as essentially um, collages that um, collages where the figures uh, edges dissolved 
into one another as a way of making these spaces work. Uh, and when I heard that, I, I thought that's exactly what I'm doing. So to answer the question more directly, I'm I'm making um, a lot of my compositions start out as just a, a scribble, of, of which is strictly conceptual. Like here's an idea for a painting, and, and I envisioned the poses to basically have these kind of gestures and these kind of poses so that the meaning is there. Um, and then I set about having one model at a time usually come into the studio and pose, and I make a study of each figure. Mm-hmm. And one the the painting we're all looking at together now, in, in the case where there's uh, one figure's touching another, and that, that touching is actually important to working out the proximity of the figures and, you know, the things like perspective of how a hand falls on a certain part of the body. Um, in those cases, I'll have two people pose together. But it, it, all the rest of this is constructed by uh, uh, making an invented drawing of the concept of, and the, the narrative and then having models come in and trying to match, having the models match the poses as closely as I can. You know, we're looking to at... To your initial drawing. To right? my initial drawing as best as I can. We're looking at my painting, a Melancholic Painter, which is also on the cover of the magazine article we were hmm. talking about. Um, and... Um, so there's a whole swirl of chaotic figures together here in a very small space. And, and uh, yeah, the goal is to get the models to match your, your concept and your sketch, your scribble. And is your sketch abstract in nature? Would it just feel like shapes and you're just fitting bodies into shapes? I, I, some artists do that, and that looks really great. And, and um, I, I tend to work in, in um, gesture, gestural drawings. My, so okay. I'm, I'm using like sweeping flow lines and scribble lines that have movement to them to try to get uh, what I call the linear composition, which is just the swirling movement of the viewer's eye sweeping through the pose. I go for that first. And when I like that, I start to pose models, but then later I, I start to adjust the composition by uh, doing a tonal composition, which is how the abstract shapes of light and dark fit together, just on a tonal level, no color or anything. Just as a, you know, it really turns into a Jackson Pollock painting for a minute. Like, do I like the assemblage of light, dark, and mid-tone values and the shapes they make? And I turn it upside down and sideways, and I think, is this a compelling, engaging arrangement of shapes? Mm-hmm. And if I like that, I proceed to the next step, then I do a color study which is I keep all these studies very small, um, like, you know, four inches in scale or so. And, and the that, color studies like direct painting. You're just sort totally, of like, yeah. Yeah, I'm just laying color down, um, trying to get an approximation of and, and just have it feel good. You know, if it, that's the great thing about a tiny color study. You, you think, well, the whole thing is shifted to green. You know, in a flash, you can you can totally alter that and get it on course without having to spend a great deal of time doing it. Right, right. So, and then you, and, and and you quickly find something that looks and feels good, and then you have a a, a course forward through the mm. painting. And what do you think about uh, use of photography? Are you photoing the models and and working? How are you? working that way typically um i have no no um opposition to working with photographic references and uh at, at least at this point in my life I've, i feel like i've been on both sides of the conversation or argument depending on uh-huh. who you are about whether photographic references is good or bad um 
I've been on both sides of it and and no currently I use a lot of photographic references and what I tend to do is um if if the pose is, is too dynamic for the model to hold for a long time then that's going to be a pain that that figure will be painted principally from photographic right, reference right exactly yeah, um, like the your your wife flying in there. Yeah, pretty... she could barely hold that for a second or two. <laughs> you know, like that we had to get her on a table, and you know, she, mm-hmm. you know, she was arching her back and holding her torso up with her back muscles and hanging off the table, and um, you know, it's just the kind of the thing you can hold for ten seconds. Yeah, exactly. and that would be a long time. So, um, yeah, where other poses um, that are more static, I can I can uh, uh, have the models pose. Or it can be a combination of using the photographic reference and or the model posing back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about gesture. I was mm-hmm. talking to Marshall about a lot of the figures in your paintings. The gestures are very, very specific and lend themselves, I think, to this idea of the myth. Yeah. Because they're so specific, the moment where you decide to, you know, take the photo or even yeah. adjust the body or have this hand that's just so, and the fingers are pursing just the right way, and and or the 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 body is arced just right. I mean, it it it's there, there's an idealist yeah. ideal quality to yeah. the figure, but then I don't know. I was just wondering if you could talk about yeah. that. Well, I I love the. Um... It's almost like an, an index or a file of poses that the Italian Renaissance uses, you know, and mm. it's like you can read the narrative of the painting um, just by the nature of the pose that the figure's in in many cases. You know, like, mm. like there's like there's a, you know, a pose for the benediction. There's a pose for uh, an adoration of, of um, virgin and child. There's a pose for the Annunciation. Mm. There's a pose for... Um, you know, uh, Christ lecturing his sermon on the mount, and based on these different poses, we tend to we can spot the narrative. You know, if you've been conditioned to read those poses, which culturally they were, you know, at that time, to look at a pose, and then with and then augmenting it with certain symbols, you could totally read the narrative and get it in a flash. Do you feel that you're reappropriating those same kind of like that same kind of language? Yeah, I think so, and I don't know if I'm doing it intentionally, but I think that I'm, I'm so enamored of that, and I was so steeped in that as a child, um, that it just became part of my, my, just my makeup, my my inner structure. I mean, I did, I went to, I went to Bible study or Sunday school every Sunday, and was you know deeply steeped in. Bible stories as a child and, and, um, you know, and illustrated stories of these things where, you, you know, you see all of these biblical stories and, and narratives playing out with these iconographic poses that stood in for, this is what's happening. This is the pose of, of an angel coming down and interfacing with the divine and grabbing their intention, attention, you know, um, and or this is the pose of melancholy, you know, the in my melancholic painter, 
you know, there's two major figures in art history that take that pose, mm-hmm. and well, they're both Richard connected Geist to them. each other, yeah. you know, and this Rodin's thinker, but before that, Rodin was pulling it from uh, Raphael's um, School of Athens, where on the stairs is, um, I want to I say it's the philosopher, um, I'm gonna, this is probably wrong, but Democritus, and he painted it as Michelangelo on the stairs mm. of the School of Athens, you know, deep in thought, pensive, and a touch melancholy. You know, so I'm, but yeah, I like the I like this file of poses and their meanings. So when you're when you're using those poses and those gestures, and you're kind of reusing them, you're putting like in this example of the melancholic painter, that's you. Yeah, that you've taken this pose. Yeah, and it's it's f- completely sincere. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean. That's a good question. Is it sincere? Um, it's you know it's it's both. I think it's both sincere. It's also um, if if you read it as a self portrait, yeah, I think so. Absolutely, if I'm honest. Um, but but it's also meant to communicate to artists everywhere and artists of um, different practices. You know, musicians, actors, and and uh, and we painters, um, you know, the painting shows the swirling, uh, chaotic interaction of voices affecting the painter, and some of them are encouraging, and others are discouraging, and some are feelings of almost like a divine mandate to create, and others are voices of um, of you know intense criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, I think every artist has to grapple with that complex. Um, host of thoughts in their head yeah. you know we're, we're constantly experiencing feelings of we have breakthroughs and we feel vindicated but then we have failures and we feel like maybe we're wasting our lives doing this and or we're searching for is there meaning in what we're doing um so you know i think it is a it's a it's a and i've had other artists uh, not only of of visual arts backgrounds but also of other um artistic practices validate that for me by looking at this painting and uh and you know a good a really uh, a friend of mine bought this painting who's a composer and um you know said that completely um spoke to him that you know and he's he's a musician you know and 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 spoke to him on that level which is why you know he wanted it do you think that there's any like do you find the themes you're working in, would you, I like Sophia saying sincere, do you delve in irony at all? Do you feel like there's any of that in your work or is it fairly? Um, I think that's starting to creep in to my, I think this was kind of like an opening to possible irony um, or sarcasm, but definitely um, comedy is starting to creep into my paintings. And I like that idea uh, of of comedy because you look at how these paintings that are painted; they're so seriously painted. Right. Like right. the techniques are are you know they're 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 very intense in terms of their technical skills, and and so there's all this 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 delving into skill and technique and virtuosity, mm-hmm. and and then to include in the narrative of a painting like that. Um, kind of comic elements. Yeah. I love the. I'm starting to love the the 
I mean, that's, that's ironic in of itself. You know, there's just the, the contrast of those two forces. Um, but you know, you know who does this really well, I think, is, um, is Georges Delatour. He has a couple of paintings where, and Caravaggio did it with, like, you know, the, the gypsy fortune tellers, the card sharps. Um, but certainly George Delatour's um, uh, they're, the, they're pickpockets. The pickpockets, the yes. yeah. That's... And he has another one that I really love. Really pretty funny, yeah. It's good. But yeah. The, the one of his I really love, I, I think it's in the Getty in Los Angeles, and it's similar to the gypsy paintings, but it's, um, it's even smaller. But it's a bunch of musicians, and they're all in a really comic way, they're fighting with each other. Like they're grabbing each other's instruments, they're wrestling, they're yelling and poking each other in the eye. But then when you, when you, when you look at, wait a minute, let me see how this is painted. It's, it's like drop dead, gorgeous, high skilled painting that a painter sees it and goes, Oh my God, that's just the apotheosis of skillful painting. And then you look at the narrative and it's really funny. And so I'm starting to enjoy this concoction of, of things that are maybe sincerely tragic and some comedy and it it's it's really um it's like the symphony of life you know it's yeah. like we are this our lives are this this incredibly um rich mix of everything from victory to failure from birth to death um from from uh, uh sadness to to joy you know and and all of the dichotomies we could list it's like it, it all plays out in all of our lives, and um, I think you know why not make painting about that? Yeah, I think it's in a, a pretty cool direction, especially juxtaposed with so much like like the paint being so developed and so masterfully done, like having a little yeah, I, I think it works well on this one, like the little the little girl with the spitball and stuff. yeah, yeah. I, I use this, uh, I tell this story to my students a lot, and I, I don't know if it has an, it probably does have a fable background to it. Maybe you guys know of a story, like an actual myth or a fairy tale. But just the idea of, it's just my own invention of a story where there's um, an assassin, and the assassin's job is to go in and assassinate the king. But he goes in the guise of the fool, the jester to the court. So he goes in, and of course, you know, he's doing jokes, and he's silly, and everyone thinks he's a fool, and, but he's a trained assassin, you know, and, and, and he skillfully assassinates the king. Mm. And I don't know if there actually is a fable like that, but I like that idea of Absolutely. this sort of... You should do that. This, yeah, this kind of deadly, um, masterful, um, expert force that's cloaked in comedy. Well, maybe that's how messages get through, you know, like yeah. good messages, a yeah. spoonful of sugar sort of thing. Yeah. Would you ever consider um, using your own face for every character in a painting? Um, I would consider it, and I, <laughs> but I've been asked about it because a lot of my paintings I do show up more than once. Mm -hmm. not, not for any degree of narcissism because I'm not, but well, because... Because I have like a comical... Yeah, I think I think it is funny when you show up several times in the painting. I usually use myself in the painting multiple times, actually, just out of convenience, because I actually, I'm the one that knows what the pose needs to be the best. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it can also just be a hassle getting enough models into the studio for the variety of it. Right, right. Um, so sometimes just for sake of ease, I'll, I'll play different roles in a painting. 
Yeah. Are you ready for some bonus round questions? Yeah, let's do bonus round questions. These are quick. These are fun. These are quick and fun questions? Quick All right. and fun. Some come way out of left field. Mm. Some don't. So oh, this much. is great. It's exciting. <laughs> so uh, is ultramarine a warm or cool color? Ultramarine blue. Oh, my gosh. I'm supposed to answer this quickly? <laughs> that's not fair because that's a huge... I throw that question at my students. Do you really? Yeah. Well, answer it slowly then. <laughs> well, I usually pose it and I show them phthalo blue and ultramarine blue side by side and they pull a tint of both colors and I say, which one is the warm one and which one's the cool one? Yep. And, you know, there's this whole argument ensues, and there's yep. two factions. There's the faction of the people that are on the side of the color wheel, uh -huh. which will say that ultramarine blue is shifted towards violet, therefore it's warm. And there's the faction of people who I think are, you know, where I fall, that are um, poetically inclined. And they say phthalo blue is the color of warm water, and ultramarine blue is the color of ice-cold water. Uh -huh. and, if, and I say make a gut level reaction which pool of water would you jump into and and then you got all these like devil's advocates and and people that are you know arguing saying well wait a minute what about like arctic water that's the little blue and and they say, yeah, and you know, in the base of a, the, the gas jet of propane coming out of the stove, that's ultramarine blue. So, um, I uh, such a great. I don't have a clear answer. And and my my good friend um, David Campbell is a great painter. And I, we we tag teamed this argument once. We both posted on our Facebook accounts uh, a photograph of phthalo blue and ultramarine blue side by side, okay. both tinted. And we just asked the public, which is warm, which is cool. And this gigantic war ensued. And we got <laughs> 500 responses. Oh, my And when it was God. all played out in arguments and side tangential conversations, people citing the color wheel, people citing the poetic aspects of, of uh, you know, the colors. Um, when it all played out, we counted it out, and it was split right down the middle. Are you serious? That people felt one was warm and one was cool. So I feel it's not... I can't possibly answer it, but um, <laughs> but if you just if I ha if you held a gun to my head and said which is warm which is cool I say thalo is warm and ultramarine blue is cold. I say the exact same thing you do. Yeah, good. And <laughs> I, because of my class urging, the league pulled all the instructors. Yeah, and cool lost by a huge margin. Thalo was, lost as a cool. No, no, no. Uh, ultramarine, ultramarine lost as a cool lost by a huge margin. Oh yeah, which is like because. People like to use the color wheel and, you know. But even that, even that, you can't, I mean, I remember, like, uh, you know, JP at the Academy. Yeah. He knows that. He'll even cite the color wheel for a reason that it's, uh, that it's still a cool color, which is nice. So yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. A great answer. All right. Uh, my question for you is what makes a great painting? Oh, what makes a great painting? I don't know if there's it. I like it that it's ineffable. You know, I when I go to the Met, um, I I let it pull me to it, um, and I, sometimes I don't know why. And uh, I guess trying to figure that out. I don't think the answer would be consistent though for me to say, you know, oh, it's virtuosic painting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be a dumb answer, but sometimes that's it. You know? mm -hmm. But sometimes, sometimes it's um, the feeling in the painting. Um, like you know, you had 
a painting that I did um, called "In the Shadows: Boy Meets Man" that was in the that was in the BP Portrait Award exhibition a couple of years back. That one. Yeah, and that painting was influenced by um, a great painting by Modigliani that I love that I had a poster of in my bedroom growing up. My grandmother gave me this painting, a poster of Modigliani, just a, a blonde-haired boy with blue eyes. And his expression, that's not the kind of painting that I aspired to do or that I, you know, um, or that I've grown up to, to, to admire the most, but you know, it captured a feeling in it. So in that case, it wasn't about... Um, virtuosity in painting. It was about a feeling, an emotion. Mm. Um, you know, other paintings, um, it can be about mood. So I, you know, I wish I could just give, you know, a clear definition, but it's so many different paintings and different periods of painting. And um, if I answer just based on what I like to do in painting, I would just go back to kind of my my biggest inspiration in painting is is seeing the interaction of of a divine force confronting the mortal. Like one of one of the big public favorites at the Met is the Bastion Lepage uh Joan of Arc. And she's having a vision of Saint Michael in the in the woods. And there it is, the interaction of the divine and the mortal. You know? But of course you combine it with with high technique and skill level in painting too. And epic scale. So you Absolutely. know Yeah. And a true historical uh, yeah, that's true. It's, it's a history painting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you think about Thomas Kincaid? Oh, poor <laughs> oh, yeah, Thomas. <laughs> um, I've had people come up to me and ask me that, like, sincerely. You know, I'm sure everyone in this room is on the same page. But they come up to me and they sincerely want to know. And I, I always try to find out before I answer, like, do they actually own one? Yeah. And they usually do. Like, they've invested in his prints. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think about Thomas Kincaid, I think it's very, it's a very sad story because he cut his name. Um, his, his, his big breakthrough, he won a, a stamp competition uh, from, for the you know, U.S. Postal Office. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he won a competition to paint a stamp, and he, he painted a landscape of... of um, Yosemite Valley. Mm. So it's beautiful landscape painting of El Capitan and Half Dome. And it's not like the Thomas Kincaid we know at all. It's uh-huh. a painting that you would look at and go, oh, good painting. Yeah. What a painter. So the guy sold out. Yeah. He won that competition, got a big name for himself, and then just took a left turn uh-huh. and said, let me go business enterprise mode. You know, the next thing you know, there his he's making money on like little ceramic oh uh, sculptures of houses in his paintings that have light up, glowing lights inside, and yep. so it's a very sad story. And of course, he passed away, and there was like some scandals about how he lived his life. And mm-hmm. So I yeah, I feel bad for the guy. But he was a good painter. He was. That's what's so. He's, yeah, that's I, the, I'm fascinated by earnestly fascinated. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's cheesy ultimately the paintings, but I I really I like them, and even some of the bizarre ones he did with like Disney characters and stuff. It's like this guy, he's just on his own. He yeah, <laughs> he's a fascinating character. Yeah, you know, a very successful businessman. Okay, here's another. One. I'm starting a new series. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice? Oh, you're starting a new series. Do you have an advice? Um, um, 
make it make it universal. Don't make it a soap opera. Mm. Like, don't make it about yourself. Mm. If it's if it's a theme, it's a series that you're attracted to because it has relevance to your own personal life. Just dial it back a few steps and ask, how does that same theme in this series apply on a universal scale to all of us? Mm. Like, give us all the ability to relate to it. Don't make it a soap opera painting. So if you're going to paint That's a great. series about um, about your spouse breaking up with you and all the heartbreak, you know, receiving the letter and then laying on the bed and crying about the letter... Um, and then, you know, and then you, and then you alone, you alone out on the cliffs, you know, Uh uh, uh, and all of the sorrow and loneliness. Um, and this, and those examples are taken from actually a very well-known successful painter who I will not name. Oh, is it really? Uh Uh-huh. Um, who who I think, I think they figured it out very well, obviously, because they have such huge success, but if you were to track back and look at their student paintings, you'd see what I'm talking about. Anyway, it's a, it was a great example of a, of a painter where in their naivete and youthfulness made soap opera paintings, meaning these are paintings about my personal life. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. If you're going to make a series, uh, make it so that it tracks across big universal themes so we can all find a way into that, to that series. That's, That's going to make it powerful, and it's going to make it you know, more timeless. Uh, have you achieved your dreams? Um, I, I think I'm, you know, right now I'm very happy. You know, I, I, when I look, when I look, um, you know, I compare my reality to, to others. Um, I have to say I'm super lucky, you know, like I, I'm, uh, you know, I've got a great marriage and kids and, um, I'm, and I'm able to, make all of that work um, and support myself and my family on, on being an artist. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, we, and that includes teaching. Mm-hmm. Although my definition of being an artist, I think it, it, it totally includes teaching. It's mm-hmm. abroad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It has to be. Yeah. Broad. And so many great artists have also been teachers and it's almost oh, like yeah. part of the process. Absolutely. So the, just looking at that and being grateful, you know, in the spirit of being grateful for what I have and what's worked out for me, um, I think that's a big dream come true. You know, because I, I do, I have a lot of friends and colleagues and, you know, they're not able to make the whole story work um, in terms of being an artist. And it's hard, right. you know, my, and I empathize and I, and I have a lot of compassion for, for all of us trying to, Make this package work, you know, support yourself, make the art you want to make. Um, and you're somehow supporting a family off of it, too. Yeah, well, I have, I have half, half help from my, from my wife. Yeah. But we, we team together and we make this work. And, and it's, like, really exciting to sell paintings and then turn around and, you know, pay bills, but also, like, pay for kids' summer camps yeah. with that money. It's great. You know? Like you know, this this one painting we're looking at right now is is um, is my son posing for it on on this rock by the ocean, and then um, and it's sold. It will show it in the museum in in London at the National Portrait Gallery. And then it's sold, and you know, it turned around and paid for his summer camps with that That's with that so sale. Good. And um, you know, that feels really good. And 
I mean, I think that's a dream come true. I'm of course like I love that painting. I, I love the sky. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really happy with this. This this is um you know boy meets man um in the shadows. It's called it's boy showing meets up man. green, but the sky yeah. is more like uh, almost cerulean. It's very cobalt blue. Yeah. Cobalt yeah. Blue. You know, it's it's interesting when when I when I a lot of times when I make a painting afterwards, I think about where did that painting come from in my mind, and what were the influences, and after it's made, it's usually like really clear. And this one, it comes down to um, two paintings by N. C. Wyeth, which are uh, the kidnapped painting with the guy on the rocks. Yep. And then another N. C. Wyeth painting where there's children on the beach and there's a and there's a giant cloudscape behind them and there's a giant striding through the clouds on the horizon line. So mm. that's part of it. And then the third one is that Modigliani painting I told you about, the boy with blue eyes and his expression. And if you put those three paintings together, you get. You I think get you get this one. Yeah. All right. So you cho- chose your own adventure on the last question. Since you have achieved your dreams, how do you stay motivated once you've achieved something? Um, I, I was, I was going to kind of go into that anyway. I was going to say, you know, like any human being, I think you, you get the, the thing you think you're after, but then you just want more and more and more. So I'm, I feel super motivated to make bigger paintings. Um, and I'd like to have bigger shows and, um, you, you know, I, I want to see, um, you know, more success with, with sales, with showing, with, um, international exhibitions and, you know, all the bigger dreams that painters would hope for. Um, I think a big one actually is just, I think I never stop hungering for further improvement in skill level. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if I, if I could see these paintings, if, if I could show my paintings now to my 18 year old self, I think I'd be excited. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but now when I look at them, I think, Oh, you know, B plus, um, you know, I can, I'll do better. I'm going to keep trying to do better. That's you know, great. and uh, so there's the hungering for more skill level. That's a big one. Even if all the success would fall away and, you know, let's say I couldn't teach and I didn't sell paintings and I, I needed another job, I would still keep painting just trying to be a better painter. You know, put all the other stuff away. I would still try to be better at drawing and at painting. You know, the same way that I did when I was 18 and I was in cast drawing class. And, and I looked over at the guy who was super good, you know, and just go, ah, and look at mine and go, how am I not there? You know, how, how can I get there? I want to be that good. And, like, there's that, that guy is still there inside me, you know, and it probably won't ever go away. Well, Noah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, on. guys. This was a blast. This is really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope I hope it's a good podcast to listen to. And yeah. Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Off Grind Podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind. We'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. ArtGrindPodcast.com. 
and follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.